Dan Pfefferman. And I'm Benny Shoulder, and welcome to Jewanced. We're two Jewish guys. We grew up in America. We live in Israel. And we're looking to challenge popular conceptions, think critically, examine independently, and most of all, seek nuance. Each episode, we'll host a different guest. Together, we'll take a deep dive into politics, foreign affairs, religion, science, technology, food, the arts, business, you name it. A lot of it will deal with the Jewish world in Israel, but not all. Our goal? To create a platform where people share their stories, insights, and visions. No talking points, no script, no agenda. Just a deeper, nuanced understanding of the world around us. Join us as we explore, think, debate, and discuss, and perhaps most of all, listen. Juanced. You know, like like nuanced, but with a J? Yeah, they get it. Dude, let's just start. Greetings out there on Podcast Land, everybody. It's Dan and Ben coming at you live with another episode of Juanced. Uh, this is episode number 28, and we are going to be with Dr. Nathan Davidovitz or Davidovitz or Davidovich or how do you pronounce that? Can you let us know? So it's uh, Davidovitz is the original pronunciation, although now here in Israel, it goes by Davidovich. Uh, so whatever, whatever you feel comfortable with. And, and he actually has a PhD in learning how to pronounce his own name. One <laughs> would have to. So before we before we get into uh, Nathan and the, and, and, the, and the story of his last name, uh, we've been in lockdown for like a week now, and yet I'm still in your apartment. So I, I guess I've, I've never left. I've I never locked, left. <laughs> that's that's the truth. I've never left. My my family, my wife, and, and kids at home are terribly missing me. No, I'm. Uh, we have a special pass to do this, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we got special permission from. Uh, the prime minister did, did you hit share did you hit share on your facebook Nathan? share now public is that I it did. i just did hi dina dina's joining us okay. hey dina. uh so how's it going for you dan how's, how's your lockdown <sighs> not so different from my not lockdown i gotta I, i'll be perfectly honest with you i i really don't miss driving to <laughs> tel aviv traffic and jerusalem traffic which is where i was going Dan and I, by the way, are totally opposite on this point. I love driving. It is the only time that I get to have like real time to myself in the normal world. And I would, you know, it's just, it's a fun thing for me. It's a hobby. And if ever we actually do get autonomous cars, I will, I will, I will. You'll, be the, the last, you'll be the last guy. Who's, I, yeah, I'll be one of those guys. I'll just, you know. Yeah. No, um, I hate driving. It's not that I hate driving. It's I hate sitting in traffic. I hate crawling like through traffic. I hate avoiding Israeli drivers who like, you know, yeah. tailgate you and, and honk at you and swerve at the last second. Um, I, I really don't mind working from home. In fact, I enjoy it. I like waking up when I want to wake up and sleeping when I want to sleep. Um, so I don't mind it. I keep saying the only thing that's really bothering me is I can't go to the gym. And, and yeah. other than that, I really don't care. You know, we can stay in lockdown forever. Um, but it's been, uh, it's been kind of a fun week. It's been a crazy week. Uh, all the events on Capitol Hill, Congress. What events? <laughs> what events? What are you talking about? <laughs> I, I heard a custodian tripped and fell. Um, no, cra- the crazy events that happened in Congress last week. And hopefully uh, next week we'll, we'll be uh, speaking about it uh, here on the show. Give it a little bit of time to digest. Um, and the upcoming um, handoff to the, to the Biden administration. Um, so we'll talk all about that. But that's big news. The vaccinations are going full steam here i know my, my wife is a teacher and she's getting vaccinated on thursday she has an appointment so my wife is also a teacher but i don't know when she's getting vaccinated 
Um, so all around interesting things. Um, and hopefully, hopefully soon I'll have some other interesting news to share with our listeners, but not right now, not on this episode. Um, yeah, what's going on with you, Nathan? Things are good. Uh, yeah, doing well. Um, surviving the Seger, actually, in uh, my, I think, second straight week of Bidud. Oh, Bidud? Oh, yeah. Bidud? Bidud? Yeah. Isolation. Yeah. Isolation. What, 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 uh, who, did you, who did you cross? What happened? <laughs> um, so we actually were in Bidud uh, for 10 days. Um, that just finished last Wednesday. Uh, my son's bus driver got tested positive. Um, thankfully he got two negative tests. And then the day after we got out, we sent all our kids to school for one day before the Seger. We figured worst case, we get put in Bidu during a Seger anyway. And at the end of the the world. world. Yeah. And then Friday morning, sure enough, we got an email from one of our kids' teachers that there was a kid with Corona in my kid's class for the one day that he was there. So we actually almost had a scare. We get a, we get a call, we get a text, a text, not even a call, a text from my daughter's teacher saying that after the teacher had not been feeling well and was in school for a few days, she got a test that she had COVID. And so all the kids who are at school on these and these and these days have to go into be dude. And then we checked our schedule. And luckily enough, um, I said with everything that was happening and with, you know, there was a bit of an outbreak at the kid's school where your kids used to go. Not yeah. And, um, and I, I decided that I'm not sending my kids to school because it was just going to be a, a shit show and uh, didn't want to have to mess with it. And it was a very good decision. And so thankfully, always we, trust your instincts. We avoided a bedewed situation here in this house. I, I'm, yeah. I'm very cautiously saying what I'm about to say, which is that, uh, in the history of this COVID pandemic, I have yet to be in a bedude situation that actually transpired into an actual bedude situation. The closest that came was that one time we were at the gym and yep, one of the yep, people yep. at the I gym remember. maybe had COVID we, or he did, have COVID, he did have COVID and we may ha- or may not have been at the same place at the same time. And we were like five minutes. So I, I put myself in an unofficial bedude for about three or four days until I got tested and got the results back. Yeah. But, but yeah, I've avoided it thankfully too. And, Which is crazy. Uh, like my wife's a teacher. My kids are yeah. got like you would figure, but no, yeah. we're, we've been okay. And uh, let's hope that it continues that way because um, I got to tell you, this is, this is, it's a bummer. I'm at home with these kids all day and uh Hopefully. I love them. They've, they, they, they've saved <laughs> life during this period. But come on, man. let's hope a couple more months of this, and soon we're going to talk about these vaccines. And uh, yep. Find so, more. but before we jump into that, before we jump into that, uh, a couple of quick announcements. As I always say, and as as you all know, uh, Juwanced is a listener supported, listener based podcast. Uh, we rely on the genuine support of listeners just like you to make sure that we keep this party going and we keep bringing great guests and, and keep uh, and, and keep Dan in good spirits. Uh, so with that in mind and with the fact that we're now, I think, in 56 countries, 60. We, today we hit 60 countries, 60 countries. Are we getting like there's weird countries in that list too? Liberia, like Somalia, and, Somalia. Yeah, that's Uganda. I, I, I picture there's like some guy in like a shed in Somalia who's <laughs> hiding from his village and like, I watched Juanced. Okay, here's the deal. Here's the deal. We have, we have of course, US and Israel are by far the two leading countries. No shock there. Uh, Canada, Australia. No, there's a number three. That's UK, India. Before that. India. It goes, it goes US, Israel, then India. Right. India surpassed um, uh, all the other countries after the, the US and Israel. Uh, countries literally across the middle. We have Morocco now. Yep. 
we have Morocco, we have Liberia, we have uh, somewhere else in West Africa, we have Uganda, Sudan, Somalia, Egypt, Ethiopia, Eritrea. I could literally, it, it's crazy. We want to ask if, if any of you listeners from these countries that we were not expecting to have listeners are listening, please send us a message, say hi, say who you are. Um, and we will be glad to give you a shout out on the next uh, show. Unless, 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 unless you coming out of the fact that you're watching Juwans is going to put you in a compromising position, right. Mr. Somalian. Yeah. Shed. We don't by, by, the, by the way, I, I had, um, we have, we have a listener. We have a friend from Afghanistan and he actually called me last night, uh, in the middle of the night. And we had a nice, he wants to support Juwanst. He he's a friend of Israel. He's a friend of the Jewish people. And he is a fan of Juwanst. Uh, Wais, if you're listening, buddy, how are you? And uh, it was nice meeting you last night um, and spread the word through the streets of Kabul uh, about Juanst. So basically, to finish, to finish the little spot here, uh, <laughs> with, with all of that in mind, if you'd like to be a supporter of Juanst, uh, you can make a one-time donation on PayPal. You can make an or, ongoing contribution, which we prefer, on we prefer. our Patreon account. Swag is coming. Uh, I know we've said that a lot, but believe me, when we get more people that are supporting on Patreon, we'll get some more swag. So if you want that to be Absolutely. you, make sure it happens. Or if and your last company week, last week, we hosted the artist who who created our, our beautiful artwork that will go. That's on right. Swag. So. Or if your company organization wants to have a spot uh, as a sponsor, you can reach out to us to make it happen. Contact us today at www.juanced.com. Uh, and now for. Spot number two. And connected to that, we are introducing Juanced Live. So these times, of course, more than most, we understand the challenges of connecting to an audience by giving them creative and meaningful content. So if you're looking to engage with your community, we've got the solution for you. Just like on the show, Benny and I can be engaging, inquisitive, witty, dare I say handsome in person. Not by the Jufro. Not by the, it's a beautiful Jufro. So our unique talent in bringing out complexity, nuance, and captivating content from guests doesn't have to end at the studio door. Whether you're interested in hosting a live dedicated podcast with audience participation, virtual and hopefully soon in person, or having us moderate your organization or community's next panel event, we've got the perfect solution for you. With our extensive network and connections to a broad range of fascinating guests on a range of topics, so and uh, what is it? In two weeks, we are doing another um, uh, Meet the Emiratis live, where the uh, Jewish Agency partnership of Rehovot, right here where we are uh, taping from, and Minneapolis, Minnesota, are going to be uh, hosting one of these Jewans live episodes of Meet the Emiratis. Um, so, for more information on how to engage us. For Juan's Live and for your next event, visit us today, today, right now, as we speak at www.juance.com. Awesome. So without further ado, I'm going to introduce our guest today. Please do. Dr. Natan Davidovich, <laughs> the director of R&D at BrainQ, a Jerusalem-based biotech company developing a wearable device that helps patients recover from stroke and other neurological disorders using a combination of brain monitoring, artificial intelligence, and electromagnetic brain stimulation. Nathan grew up in the beautiful state of New Jersey and has been active in the medical device field for over 15 years. He has worked on several cutting-edge medical devices, including the world's first vestibular prosthesis that is designed to communicate with the brain to help patients recover from extreme dizziness and imbalanced disorders. If you don't know what that is, neither do I, so we're about to find out. Nathan has also been using his data science skills to model COVID-19 spread throughout Israel and has been posting insights and forecasts 
in concise and easy to understand form. And if you don't know what COVID-19 is, I can't help you. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, So that is why uh, the last part is why we decided to invite uh, our good friend, uh, Natan, uh, to quote uh, Goodwill Hunting. He's, He's wicked smart. He's wicked smart, Natan, and we wanted to get him on the show. Uh, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me on the show. Um, I've been really impressed with uh, the work you guys have been doing so far in Juanced. I've listened to a bunch of podcasts. Uh, really, really interesting, entertaining stuff. So keep it up. Appreciate it. Much obliged. Thank you so much. So uh, uh, what? Let's. I, I kind of want to jump into COVID because I've just been wanting to learn about this. Um, all, all week, it's been on everyone's minds. We've had the rollout of the vaccines. Everyone's talking about mutations. Um, now, this isn't what you work in. This, you're not a COVID professional, but like no. you're, you're wicked smart, and you've been doing, uh, you've been tracking this. You've been modeling. How, what is your interest in this, and kind of what have you been what have you been doing relating to COVID over the past year? Fair so. Way. Sure. Um, <clears throat> so I think like many people living in the world nowadays are pretty interested in, uh, in the coronavirus. Um, <clears throat> and, and for me, I, you know, I was reading a lot of news reports and very few of them contained any good data analysis. Um, and, you know, there was all this, you know, tons of data publicly available. And there were reports saying this many cases came out today. This, they didn't lack, they lacked any kind of uh, detailed modeling or trends. Um, and so, so that was, you know, I saw like, just for myself, I was really curious, okay, where is this thing going? You know, if we just kind of look at the data up until now and try to model out uh, what's, what's going to happen, let's see, you know, how, how, how much more of this are we gonna have to suffer through? Um, and, and coupled with that, I was also really interested in learning about COVID, um, in terms of how it affects people and how it spreads and, um, how sick it's going to make me and what are my odds of getting sick? Uh, because I think it's, it's really important, um, just as, as a person living in this new world to try to understand how to deal with these new risks. Um, you know, is it safe for me to go to the supermarket? Is it safe for me to send my kids to school? And, so, you know, these answers were not being given by anybody in the, in the media or even in the scientific community. There were all different opinions and it was very difficult to get any clear answers on that. So all that motivated me to, to start learning about this for myself primarily. And once I started doing that, I, I started sharing some of my insights and, uh, and findings on, on Facebook. Um, so so I, and that's kind of that. I mean. Forgive me for, for saying, I mean, that's kind of still the situation. I mean, I, I try to find out some clear data on COVID and it's, and it's like you search COVID data on Google and you're going to get good luck. <laughs> I mean, it's frustrating for something that's so affecting of all of us. It's, it, it just seems like, you know, either you're looking at data that, you know, could be manipulated for political reasons or you're looking at data from a website like, you know, uh, you know, ridiculous uh, misinformation Russian website or, or it could be like uh, no offense to the people that are listening in Russia we have one listener from Russia. Okay. <laughs> don't worry about it Through Russia or or like uh, you know it's Putin you don't want to say that we apologize true. True. <laughs> we apologize very much no but for real it seems like it's very hard to find data so so did you find reliable data <clears throat> and I will say this I, I know you 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 went to Johns Hopkins and, I, and I'll give credit to Johns Hopkins because they were from the very beginning they had that counter site uh, which tracked data around the world. I think in the, even like going back towards January or February, very early on. Um, is that kind of like 
one of the only still very reliable real-time sources or, or what you discovered? So it's, it's one of them and it's one of the best ones actually. So I'm glad you mentioned it. Um, there are a lot of reliable sources for, for coronavirus data out there. Um, specifically in Israel, Israel has been very good about, um, uh, I mean, not, not throughout the entire time, but today they, they're, they're very good at publicizing uh, accurate reports um, from, from my understanding and from many experts understanding it's, it's not, you know, biased in any, in any obvious way. There's mistakes here and there, but aside from that, it's very accurate. Um, and <clears throat> there are a lot of uh, good places to look. Um, speaking of, of Hopkins, I mean, my, my wife and I both went to Hopkins actually. Um, she has a PhD in epidemiology. Um, and- I'm gonna go get her. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's funny because- Family yeah. underachievers. <laughs> you can imagine what our conversations have been like lately. Right. Um, <laughs> <I don't want> so, <laughs> um, so anyway, I mean, up until the coronavirus outbreak, um, people, you know, had no idea what she did when she would tell people she was an epidemiologist. She was like, oh, yeah, you know, my foot's been bothering me. Maybe you can help me with that. And like, no, that's, and, and now all of a sudden everybody's like, oh, wow, you must be the most in-demand person in the world right now. It's, um, it's, it's, it's their moment. moment of time. So she was actually a cancer epidemiologist. She is a cancer epidemiologist. Um, and that's what her focus was in, in her PhD. Um, so not exactly so relevant to what's going on right now, but the, the skills and the tools she learned are, are relevant. And so that was very helpful for me when trying to look at the data and trying to analyze it to have her to be able to discuss some of these ideas with and, and validate some of these analyses that I've been doing. Um, but <clears throat> bottom line is that, yes, there is lots of data out there. That's, that's not what's missing. What's missing is journalists that have data, data science and data analysis and epidemiological skills. Um, that's not a common combination. Um, so there just weren't a lot of kind of well-respected, well-known people that you can reliably go to and say, okay, this person has a good data analysis that I'm, that I'm going to follow. Why, why do you think that is? Um, I think that becoming a trained epidemiologist takes many, many years of training and yeah. Is, no, a journalist, but the question that I'm asking: If you're is, a well-trained data scientist, you're not going to go into journalism. No, no, no. no my, my question. I'll, I'll clarify my question. Journalists rely on sources of information, and, and, and we would hope that we want, would want to source reliable information. Was it that journalists weren't seeking out data scientists and epidemiologists to try to receive information, or I mean, what? what? Yeah. So. That's, it's a good point, right? I mean, a journalist could have searched, you know, I'm sure they have contacts in different fields and found kind of their go-to epidemiologist to do, you know, uh, data, data analysis. Um, I, I have not seen really any, any journalists that have, that have done that. There are any, any newspapers that, that have, you know, uh, hired any epidemiologists on staff to, to write these kinds of articles. There, there might be. I, I just haven't come across any. Yeah. I don't know why. Didn't the Israeli news, uh, I mean, uh, uh, throughout the whole thing, I was watching uh, Channel 12 News, and didn't they have senior, I don't know if he's an epidemiologist, but a senior uh, medical professional, you know, uh, on the nightly show explaining what's going on, explaining the trends, right? Well, you would have the, the director general of the health ministry. No, they had uh, Gabi Balabash. Um, isn't that his field? 
It's like a COVID expert. Like, yeah, well, he was he was meant to be if I'm if I'm if I'm not mistaken, he was meant to be the COVID czar yeah. at one point in time, and he rejected that. He no, but he, he was on the news. Every he was he was on the news. Breaking down. Look, the thing the thing with journalists, and if you recall, we kind of talked about this in the episode with Mark Levy, um, when we talked about kind of what's happened to the field of journalism. They're losing their budgets, you know, newspapers especially. <clears throat> there's, le- there's less and less of a budget. And, uh, and so I, I don't want to say they've gotten lazy because as individuals, they're not lazy, but they're having to do uh, more work with less people. And half the time that they're working, they're actually on social media having to get, the, to get what they know out. So they're actually doing less and less journalistic work. So they're relying on fewer sources, more shortcuts. Again, not the fault of individual journalists, but kind of what's happened to the profession over time. And, and so they are, you know, I don't envy them. I don't know if they have time. They certainly don't have time to sit and do the kind of things that Natan has been doing of his own goodwill. Uh, and I don't think they have the skills to, to do that either. Uh, you're right. Why doesn't every major paper have an epidemiologist uh, consulting to them right now? You know, why doesn't, it, if there's any newspaper editors listening, go to not. <laughs> I, I will say so, that to, to the, to the benefit and, or to the, uh, to the credit of the New York times, they have had regular c- columns or regular uh, articles that have quoted lots of epidemiologists. I remember they've done a couple of times, you know, uh, a, a survey of epidemiologists in the U S at different times, you know, what will you be comfortable doing now? And it's like going to the movies, going to the grocery store, sending your kids to school, going to a hotel, like all these sorts of things. And, and, you know, where does, where do things line up? So, yeah, before, so, so, Nathan, hang on a second. I want to say our yeah. friend from Afghanistan just joined us. Why how you doing buddy? Um, just joined us on, on the watch party. Good times. Um, so what, what, have you, what have you been looking at and what have you been finding? What have you been seeing? Well, I just want to address one thing that you just mentioned regarding uh, journalism for one second. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, so first of all, the New York Times and also the Wall Street Journal have both been doing a decent job of showing some data, but it's, it's generally very basic. Um, they show, you know, new cases per day, fatalities per day, and show graph. There's, there's a lot more to the COVID story than just those two numbers. And and in order to really get at those deeper messages and those deeper understandings requires a lot of time and a lot of uh, experience with data and data analysis and um, data, data analysts and data scientists are not cheap people to employ. So um, the only people that I've seen really doing this kind of deep analysis are actually like friends of mine on Facebook that also, you know, have a data, data science background and just doing it as a hobby. I mean, there, there are some professors also, there's some professors in Weitzman uh, specifically that, that, that do some really interesting work. Um, anyway, so going back to your question of uh, what, have, what have I found? Um, yeah, and, and what kind of sources are you looking at? So, <clears throat> I mean, the, the sources are, the, I mean, the, the data that I look at, and, and I've mostly focused on Israel, um, you know, natural bias to focus on the place where you live. Um, and also, partly because the data is pretty easy to access. They have well-organized uh, you know, data files on their website. You can just go download, uh, update it almost daily. Um, and you can, you can find out uh, a, lot of, a lot of interesting things. Um, I guess I'll just start with uh, one, one point of optimism that uh, just came out actually, I just saw it posted. Um, you wanna share some slides? Uh, sure, I'll go ahead and share a slide. Um, so, so for those of those of the uh, audience that are watching live, we're going to share some slides. Uh, for those of you who will be listening on the download later, you will be able to find 
uh, the slides that Natan shares on the show notes and you'll be able to check them out. Right. And I'll actually just use this opportunity to say to everybody that this will be coming live for those that, you, that, that are watching the live stream right now that don't know. This will be going live as a podcast uh, on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and across all podcast platforms. Uh, or you can watch the video on our website. Right. Uh, this, this Thursday uh, evening uh, or Friday morning in the, in the U.S. Uh, or the opposite, I should say. Yes. So stay tuned. Go ahead. Okay. So uh, if you can give me permission to share my screen, I'll go ahead and share some slides. Right, give me one second. And, uh, I'm, you know... I'm going to start off with a point of optimism, which is probably a better way to end the podcast because there's a lot of bad news coming. <laughs> I'm going to warn you. Walk us through it. What are you looking at? <clears throat> so this is something that was just uh, published by the Ministry of Health, the Israeli Ministry of Health, <clears throat> showing some uh, pretty encouraging news, actually. Um, I, honestly, I didn't have a chance to look through all the details of this chart because it was literally like three minutes before joining the podcast. I saw this. Um, but this shows stratified by age, um, and this shows how many people were tested positive with coronavirus, um, after receiving the vaccine. Okay. Okay. So what we see in this column is, uh, within one to seven days of all people that received the vaccine, 244 tested positive for the virus. So within eight out of the million whatever people who have gotten the vaccine, of them, only 240 have tested positive since. And that's only the first part of the vaccine. That's correct. Um, now, I'm not sure how that compares to the general population. Um, although, it, I mean, it's, there are, you know, right now we're at all-time highs of people getting corona in Israel. Um, so... Yeah, I'm not sure exactly, you know, how many people were in this study, but but the point here um, is is that <clears throat> there were 244 that tested positive within one to seven days, 124 that tested positive between eight and 14 days, and after 15 days, only seven tested positive. Oh wow! So what what this seems to say, and again, we're not seeing percentages here, so everything has to be taken with a grain of salt. Um, but when you look at the number, I mean, so the vaccine has been shown to really only kick into full drive after about, um, 10 days to two weeks, meaning the, the immunity that, that it provides really, you're only going to start to see it after about two weeks. And that's what we're seeing here that, um, you know, within the first week when the vaccine is not really active, 244 people got, got, got coronavirus, got infected. But once the, vi once the vaccine has had a chance to kick in, only seven did. Um, pretty significant difference. And actually those numbers are not too far off from the Pfizer study, which showed that in a similar kind of a group, um, you know, where they, te they, they tested, they injected uh, about, I think, 20,000 or 40,000 people with the vaccine. And then another equal number of control subjects with the sham vaccine. And they found that, you know, for every 100 people that tested positive with a coronavirus in the control group, only five uh, tested positive in the treatment group. And uh, so that, that's why they, they say it's 95% effective because uh, 95 out of those 100 people that got the treatment did not get COVID. Wow. Can we talk for a second a bit about the, the vaccines themselves? And we, we were kind of you know, as we were prepping for the show, um, you know, or, or last week when we were talking, um, 
I was hoping you could take us into what the different kind of vaccines are. So we got, you know, uh, the Pfizer and Moderna, which I understand is one kind of technology. And then the Russian and the Chinese is a different uh, technology. Can you can you kind of Dan, walk Dan wants this? to know which one's going to turn him into the Incredible Hulk? <laughs> um, which one? So I, for which one am I going to grow a tail and start speaking Russian? <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, unfortunately, the side effects are limited to uh, an allergic reaction at this point. So, uh, <laughs> um, and I think that's only in like point zero zero one percent of cases. Um, anyway, I, so I'm not a vaccinologist, um, and that is a, that is a thing. I actually didn't even know that was a thing. <laughs> um, but I, you know, just out of interest in, uh, in what's going on in the world, I've, I've done some reading and, uh, the vaccine story is, is, uh, is a really interesting one. Um, especially, you know, coming from my experience in, in the medical, in the med tech field and kind of knowing how a lot of these processes work, mm-hmm. um, when COVID first started being a thing, um, people said, oh, the vaccine, we might have it in a year, in a year and a half. My prediction was way more pessimistic. I was thinking, you know, two to three years at the earliest. I mean, basing, the, basing it on prior vaccine development, you know, the rates that, that, other vaccines had uh, the time that was yes that and as well as my own experience in the medtech field and seeing how slow the regulatory process is and how how long it takes to develop develop things and and do studies and animal studies and then you know delays and mistakes and you know these things take a long long time i mean uh, one of the companies that i worked for was a startup and it was around for 12 years without without making a penny without having a product. It was development, pure development and regulatory and animal studies for 12 years. And, and that's, that's not so unheard of in the medical field. So the fact that they were able to come up with a vaccine um, in this amount of time is nothing short of extraordinary. I mean, I was, I was listening, by the way, to your, the, the podcast you had with uh, the, the David Maiman, I believe his name David, was. David Mannheim. David Mannheim. Mannheim, sorry um risk uh expert expert yes and and he i was actually laughing a little bit when i was listening to it because he's like at the earliest the absolute earliest we'll get the vaccine is january and he said that oh yeah he was right he was right on well well, at the earliest (laughs) um gotta check back in with him and see if he has any predictions and things we can bet on (laughs) <laughs> so, <laughs> so he was he was pretty close and and the fact that that we even beat that by a couple of weeks is is just is, is really something extraordinary um well, and let, me, let me ask you something ha- having been on on the the research side of the you know, different kinds of medical technologies um is it the meta is it the scientific part that takes so long or the regulatory part that takes so long or both the answer is both, and it, it very much depends on on the technology, on the problem, on, on whatever it is you're trying to solve, how much uh, literature and evidence there is to support what you're doing, how much you are on the cutting edge. Um, one of one of the fascinating things about about this virus, uh, this vaccine, sorry, is that the uh, the genome of coronavirus was publicly made available in early January of 2020. And that it was basically the blueprint for what the virus looks like. 
that gave researchers a fighting chance to start to start the race for the vaccine. Right. And uh, there was this guy named uh, Barney Graham who, uh, who has done a ton of research uh, on viruses. He's basically, uh, you know, a vaccinologist, and he had essentially developed one of the, been one of the pioneers for developing this uh, this kind of vaccine technology, um, which is. To, I'm talking right now about the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, which are both based on the same technology of uh, the mRNA. There you go. I say someone's done their homework. <laughs> um, Messenger so RNA. That's right. Um, Get you. <laughs> and so he's he was the, kind of the pioneer of this technology, and and a lot of people are like, oh, this is a new technology. It's so scary. It it is new. It's never been in a marketed device, but. This has been something that's been in development now for, I want to say, I mean, it's been in, in clinical trials at the very least for eight years, at least, meaning I don't know exactly how many people have been injected with, with the vaccine of this sort, but um, it's, not, it's not brand new. It's not like the first person was injected with an mRNA vaccine um, at the beginning of these trials. So what, what does uh, it mean for a vaccine? To be how how did vaccines you know um, just kind of get us all on the same level of understanding? We're not all as well read as Benny here. On, uh, on, <laughs> Heaven we're not all vaccinologists. Um, what what is kind of the traditional approach to vaccines, and then what is the mRNA technology, and what does it do different? So, if you'll allow me, uh, I think it's important to really understand how viruses work sure. um, in order to understand really what a vaccine does. Um, so viruses are uh, actually <clears throat> the most abundant life form on the planet. Um, if you consider them a life form, which is actually up for debate, um, many people consider uh, a life form to be something that can self-replicate or replicate within its own species. A virus obviously cannot, I mean, I shouldn't say obviously, <laughs> but it needs a, it needs a, a host. That's, okay. that's, how, that's how it replicates. Um, and it, there's approximately 10 to the 31st power viruses on the planet right now. And, you know, that sounds like a big number and it's hard to really wrap your mind around something like that. But I mean, just to give you a kind of a sense of perspective, like if you count the number of grains of sand on planet earth, you get to about 10 to the 18th power. Holy crap. So we're talking about taking all the grains of sand on the planet and multiplying that by a trillion. Oh, and that's, and, and that's, that's the, the kinds of viruses or the virus, the number of virus particles, if wow. we want to not particles of virus. Uh, if, I don't know what you call the individual virus, actually. Uh, the, the, the units of a virus. <laughs> yes. Are you more or less optimistic. That's the scariest thing I've ever heard in my life. Listen, man, we know a lot of these viruses. We just don't want to name names. <laughs> um, so, we're in my family tree. Um, so, so there's there's a lot of them out there, and um, and the way the way they uh, infect us, it's I mean, and it's interesting to think about them also because they're incredibly simple. They're essentially a, a piece of floating RNA or DNA, depends on the virus, there's, there's different kinds. Um, but that's it. Essentially, it's, it's a floating piece of uh, RNA wrapped in 
a small piece of fat or protein and that's it. Like it doesn't have any way to, to move on its own. It doesn't have any, any way of thinking or anything like that. It's just a piece of, it's almost like a floating piece of dust. And that's, that's essentially what's shutting down the world right now. Sounds like um, <laughs> <laughs> um, So these floating pieces of code, could you call them that? Sure. Okay. So it, it happens to be that every cell in our body also has a piece of DNA and RNA, many pieces of them actually. And, and our cells are designed to essentially read pieces of DNA and RNA and perform functions based on what these codes tell them to do. So what this, what this virus does is it finds its way into our body and, and it's some, it finds a different way to get inside of a cell. And then, it become, then that becomes the host cell. There's, there's different ways. Corona uses its uh, spike protein, which maybe I'll talk a little bit more later, but essentially it, it finds its way into the cell and then releases its RNA into the cell. And this RNA gets recognized by the cell as if it was its own RNA. Mm. The cell can't tell the difference. And it starts reading the RNA um, just like it does with its own RNA. And it starts basically doing whatever instructions the RNA tells it to do. And the RNA tells it to make more viruses. Um, so all of a sudden it's this virus- hijacking. It's like hijacking the cells. Exactly. It's it, this tiny piece of code floats its way into your cell. And then it essentially takes command of your cell and says, I want you to start manufacturing more copies of me. And it builds, then the cell starts building all the pieces of the virus. The pieces assemble inside the cell and an individual host cell can then produce millions and millions of these virus units as uh, we now call them. Building pieces um, of code, yeah. <laughs> and, and then eventually the, the millions of, uh, of viruses burst out of the cell, uh, sometimes burst, sometimes come out slowly and continue to have the cell manufacture additional virus particles. Um, and then go on to infect other cells and other cells, and then also get into your airway. And when you breathe, they go to other people and manage to infect other people. Um, so an individual person can <laughs> manufacture you know, millions, if not billions of, of these uh, viruses within them before, before the immune system starts to track down and identify the viruses and start killing them. So, but you're saying it's not like a living organism, right? because you know, biologically speaking, you know, biologically speaking, uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, the goal on, on the most basic evolutionary level, the goal of every species is to procreate itself, right? The goal of every individual and then species is to make as much of it as possible. We can say like cockroaches are the most successful, I don't know, living thing in the world by the fact that they've managed to procreate themselves and take over and be on every continent, et cetera, et cetera. But you're saying uh, viruses are not even thinking beings in that sense, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's one of the things that still kind of has me shocked when I think about it. That you have this 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 particle that has no no desires, no will, or anything. It's it's essentially uh, just this like bug of nature, uh, bug in the terms of in terms of like <laughs> a virus kind of a bug. Um, this 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 bug of nature that um, somehow developed, you know, some molecules managed to come together to replicate what we have in our cells. And then it just so happened that 
um, this thing can take over and wreak havoc in your body. Uh, no desire, no intention at all. By on th this this virus particle gets no benefit, no no nothing from from invading and killing people. It's just does does what it does. An agent of chaos, right? Yeah, it's sort of like a wildfire. I, I like your metaphor. It's like a bug of nature, but it, but it quite literally is. It's like there's the 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 stuff of life, the the particles, the, the molecules, the things that are that are you know make up you, me, and every other living creature on this planet. And then there's like the, the leftover stuff that somehow evolved and came together, but didn't fully develop and create itself into you know the finished product. It just kind of was. Almost like we look, we talk about a computer virus. Obviously, a computer virus is named after the, you know, these types of viruses, yeah. but today it's easier to think of it almost in the other way around. <laughs> yeah. Um, where it's like, it's like something that's not meant to even exist, but it does. And it, and it, and it just totally screws up everything. But it, but it's, yeah. you know, it has no, you can't control it. But, anyways, so we, we've developed yeah. these technologies that are able well, hey, to. That, that's, that's a virus. Okay. So then how, but then let's jump back into maybe you were going here. What what are vaccines then? Yeah. Yes, exactly. So that's <clears throat> that's what I was getting to. So once the body is infected with a virus, the immune system is uh, <clears throat> basically uh, called to action and starts to identify the virus. And once they are able to identify what the virus looks like, they create antibodies that are able to track down and kill all the viruses that are in your body. Okay, but that's already after you've been infected and suffer some of the consequences of being infected. Now, vaccines, as they were originally uh, thought of, was essentially to give you a weakened form of the virus so that you would maybe suffer some mild symptoms, but you would have enough of a hit that your immune system would respond and create antibodies. And then if the virus came back, your immune system would know how to deal with it. Um, and that's been what virus, what vaccines are almost all vaccines that, that you get today, that, that's what they are, either, either deactivated or weakened versions of the, of the virus itself. Now, this new technology, the mRNA virus, yep. uh, is, uh, is a radical uh, shift away from what vaccines used to be. And it's, it's really quite brilliant if you think about it. Um, it's almost replicating the, the same way that the virus works um, <clears throat> but instead of having the entire uh, virus on this mRNA vaccine, um, basically what scientists have created is a, a sort of a virus particle with only one piece of the code that is in the normal virus. And it's the one piece that scientists believe will most uh, is most likely to activate the immune response and trigger the creation of antibodies. Hmm. So... What it is, is it's essentially, in, in the case of coronavirus, uh, the mRNA in the vaccine codes for the spike protein, um, which is what I mentioned earlier is what it, the, the coronavirus uses to kind of weasel its way into the cell. Um, and it, scientists have found a way to code it with a, <clears throat> a molecule, molecule called PEG that's able to kind of transfer the, this piece of mRNA code through the body and into the cell. And then once it gets into the cell, <clears throat> similar, similar to how the virus uses its code to manufacture the entire virus, this piece of mRNA code um, goes into the cell and then the cell manufactures just the spike protein. Okay, so now you have the cell, which probably won't end up doing so good after this, but it's only one or 
one cell or hopefully not too many cells, manufactures this spike protein that then goes to the surface of the cell. And that's enough to trigger the immune system to, uh, to respond and create antibodies. And there's no risk of having the vaccine uh, infect your body because there is no, uh, sorry, there's no risk of having the virus infect your body because there's no, there's no virus particle in your body. It's just one tiny piece of the virus. Let me ask you a stupid, a stupid question. If, if, the, uh, if your body is triggering an immune response and producing antibodies, why doesn't it also mount a fuller immune response that causes inflammation? <clears throat> like how well, does your body know to only do that one function of its immune response and not do the others? So in a normally functioning body, um, in a healthy person without uh, any kind of immunodeficiencies, um, when there's an invader of any kind, um, it will respond only to the invader and not attack its own body. I mean, what, what happens sometimes with uh, an autoimmune disease or some kind of a disease where your immune system is not working properly is, is that your body mounts an immune response. And in addition to attacking only the cells that only the viruses or bacteria for that matter, that are harmful to the body, it identifies its own healthy cells as uh, alien cells or harmful cells. And the immune system starts to attack and kill healthy cells in your body. And, and that can be a process that <clears throat> you know, cycles out of control um, that ends up causing tremendous damage. And, and you know, people with, with these kinds of autoimmune disorders can have serious challenges in life because of that. Uh, but in normal, healthy people, um, that's that's not the case. And uh, thankfully, you know, the immune system knows to only target the enemy particles. So I just want to try to get a grip of what you're saying here. Um, Benny might have a stupid question, but I'm 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 the stupider one here. Um, <laughs> so th- there are two kinds. If I understood correctly, there are two kinds of vaccines here. So so the Chinese and the Russian are based on kind of the old model of just injecting you the weakened form of the virus? Is, is this what I'm understanding? And then the so, form tricks the body into thinking it has the virus without actually giving it the virus? Not exactly. Okay. Um, they're actually both uh, new forms. They're both new, new kinds of vaccines. Um, new in the sense that they've never been um, used uh, outside of a clinical trial, but both have been used in previous clinical trials. Um, you mentioned Chinese and Russian, and it's also the Oxford vaccine. The AstraZeneca vaccine is also based on the same technology. Um, it's um, much cheaper to develop and also requires, um, doesn't require as cold temperatures to store it. So there's significant advantages there, especially when you're talking about third world countries that can't keep vaccines at minus 80 degrees or whatever the Pfizer requires. Um so it, it is a different technology, and that one is based on a. Uh, <clears throat> so, uh, I, from from my understanding, um, it's it's based on a uh, an adenovirus, which is essentially um, instead of. So the Pfizer. Let me back up for a second. The Pfizer and Moderna um, vaccines are a piece of mRNA that is wrapped in a synthetic coating. And that synthetic coating makes its way into your cell. Um, the 
the uh, AstraZeneca and Chinese and Russian forms that's basically a uh, adenovirus is essentially a real virus that they've uh, that scientists have found and deactivated in a way to make it less dangerous to your immune system. And they've genetically modified the DNA inside this virus so that it also goes into your cell and produces the same spike protein as the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. Um, the, the essential difference is that the vehicle for getting the code into your body is in uh, Pfizer's case, a synthetic coding, and in, in the other case, a, uh, an actual virus to, to bring it into your body. And the advantage of having this, uh, and another advantage of having this adenovirus-based uh, vaccine is that it's DNA. It, it has DNA inside of it instead of RNA. What's the difference? Uh, the difference is that uh, DNA is double-stranded. Um, what that means is that it's, it has one strand that has uh, the code, and another strand that essentially has an inverse copy of the code. Um, whereas RNA is just one strand that has the code. So what that means is that it's more stable because it essentially has a duplicate copy of it and, and makes it more robust and makes it uh, less likely to break down as it's transferred, which is why it, it doesn't need as That's why uh, cold temperatures. Um, but essentially is the it, end result- Is it as, as, yeah. as effective as the <laughs> Pfizer Moderna one? Um, it's a little bit controversial. Um, it's actually an interesting story with the AstraZeneca virus vaccine, sorry. Um, they, uh, during their study, they meant to give, I, I hope I'm remembering the, the details right. They meant to give two doses, just like in the Pfizer and Moderna cases. So you're, 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 it's doing the clicking thing now again. Is it? Mm, let, me, let me switch, give me a second. Can you hear me better now? I think so. Yeah, let's try it like this for a little Can bit. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'll, I'll switch back to, to the other one in a minute. The, uh, so as, as you guys probably are aware, the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, you need two doses to get full immunity of them. Right. Um, so the AstraZeneca also planned their study to do two full doses. Um, and their results came back not very good. Uh, it was around... I think 60%, maybe 70% effective. Um, but there was one small subgroup of their study that they accidentally gave only half a dose to in the first, uh, in the first injection. And it turned out that that group was actually around 90 to 95% effective, similar to Pfizer and Moderna. So there was this uh, lucky <laughs> twist of fate where they screwed up and ended up with a result that was actually uh, better than what they were planning on doing. So if, if they give half the dose, it's actually more effective? Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know if they fully understand Yeah, I'm why. not going to try to wrap my head around that. That's, that sounds <laughs> super counterintuitive. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, you know, it, there's, a, there's a balancing act, I guess. I, to be honest, I, I can't really okay. explain it. But, but that kind of a, I mean, we'll call it a complimentary mistake, kind of had some pretty drastic business implications upon them at the time. I remember they, it was very controversial and, and, and many people, you know, in an already controversial subject talking about vaccines and new technologies and do I get the vaccine? Do I not get the vaccine? It's kind of like, well, wait a second. 
how much can we trust the data of this company and 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 whatnot? And it's like, well, it's Oxford and it's it's super, you know, it's Oxford and, and it's like, yeah, but they did they fudge it? Did they not? It, it, it's it's also you know so so much tied into the misinformation disinformation of our time, right? Because it's like now who do we believe? And 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 you know, given the choice. Should I just take the Pfizer one because that data seems to be much well, more solid? We don't have a choice here, do we? No, we don't have a choice. But then given the choice, um, that that seems to be how it is. So, so what's the the deal is is you have to take two of the. Let's talk about Pfizer and Moderna just for a second here because that's what we have in Israel at least, um, yeah. and I think in the U.S. that's what they're going to be taking. Correct. Um, um, that's what they currently have. I yeah, that, I think that's what they currently have approved. I'm not aware that if they have any other ones approved. So, so you have to take two doses, right? You take one and then you come back three weeks later and you take the second one. And then about how long after that does it become effective? Um, so is, is my audio okay? By the way? Yeah, 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 you're fine. Great. Okay. Um, so actually according to the Pfizer study, which is the only one that I've seen the, uh, the full uh, report on, um, they've already shown that the effectiveness kicks in about 10 to 14 days after getting the first dose which is why a lot of countries right now are actually delaying the second dose because they're trying to get as many people to get the first dose as possible um, so that, because we already know that it's effective after the first dose. When you say effective, I'm sorry, sorry to cut your train of thought. Yeah. This seems to be a point that many people aren't clear upon. When, when you say it's effective after 10 to 14 days, is that effective at the 95% rate or is that effective at a lesser, more, uh, maybe short-sighted type of rate where you could say, yeah, but maybe we shouldn't really do this because then you're kind of playing with fire that there's going to be a second dose down the line and maybe it doesn't come in time. And then, you know, it's, it's something that nobody knows. Um, so we, you can, because they got the second dose uh, within a week after they started seeing the effectiveness um, there's not, you know, that's, there's not enough data there to really be able to tell, okay, you know, what would happen if you only got one dose? We definitely saw that there's, that it's better, but we can't, we can't give, we can't give a number with a super high degree of confidence on that, on how much better it is. And we also don't know what's going to happen if you delay the second dose, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, according to what people believe and based on animal studies and things like that, you can sort of make conjectures, but, um, it's it's kind of an, it's kind of unknown and and even worse than that when people got the first dose they signed up for it under the assumption that they were going to get the second dose after right. three weeks and then all of a sudden you know the UK for example is saying nope we're not giving you the second dose we're going to give it to people who uh, who haven't gotten anything yet yeah spread it out right is, is that was kind of the debate that that started happening is do we give a fewer number of people two doses or a large number of people one dose and so where are they on that. I don't know if you're following. So uh, I'm pretty sure the UK has has officially decided to only uh, d- to spread it out, to give more people the first dose and delay the second dose up to uh, a few months, I think. That's also what, uh, what Joe Biden pledged to do. He said that they're going to um, give, give the maximum amount of first doses, whereas the, the current administration was holding the second uh, the second dose in storage for people that had already received the first dose. Interesting. So do you, do you know, and maybe this was tied to that first slide you showed us, you, after 10, was it 10 days or 14 days? You, you, want, this, to, you want to pull that back up and, and, and we can talk about that? Sure. So this, this slide was showing after, let's see, after 15 days. 
After 15 uh, days. And this is just one dose because that's all we've had so far. Exactly. This is showing after 15 days. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm assuming that we're talking about, you know, um, the same number of people in each of these groups. Although, again, I don't have the full data in front of me. Um, but if, if that is what we're talking about, then we're seeing 95% effectiveness here after 15 days, um, which, you know, I think it's, it's also an interesting point here, by the way, is that Israel right now has some of the highest incidence rate uh, of COVID in the world, um, which makes it an excellent time uh, to, to, do, to do this kind of vaccine study. Yeah, and it, uh, it, it makes it an excellent candidate for Pfizer to dump a lot of product on to try to see how their product actually fares on in, in a in a you know with on millions of people in a short amount yeah. of time. I was actually wondering, I you know, kind of, I'm not a conspiracy theory type of guy, but it's one of these things where I wondered if the the reason we were able to get this so fast, so much faster than the rest of the world, was because you know what, maybe there was like a little bit of a nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Hey, Pfizer will be your kind of laboratory. <laughs> You know, you think there's any kind of uh, that happening? Taking well, I don't think it's a conspiracy. I think that that's actually just very good business. It's we will share with you data and and nothing will be so kind as to speculate on what that data might be. And and we will, you know, in return, receive at a very high rate uh, over market rate, the, the vaccine that that you. Uh, we would get in a much slower amount of time, a much more lengthy amount of time. And in return, you can use us as a model to see how well your product's actually working amongst millions and millions of people. And therefore, that's a really long way of saying we're going to be your test bunnies. Yeah, but it's not a test bunny. It's just, it's, it's good business. If you're Pfizer, it's terrific. Oh, for Pfizer, it's terrific. I'm talking about for us. But I don't think it's a matter of test bunnies, right? I mean, because it's, I see where you're saying. I, I see what you're where you're going with that. Where you're saying like nobody really knows what's really <laughs> going to happen. So maybe we'll just let the we'll just let the Jews uh, let the Jews <laughs> be the test bunnies. They're willing to do it. Um, you know, it, it's funny that you that you mentioned it from that perspective because I bet most people in the world are or not most people, but I bet there's many people in the world who are looking at Israel and being like, oh, those Jews are controlling everything again and getting all the vaccine that they can. It's interesting, Dan. We what you just said is exactly a point that I I said to you. Yeah. a couple of weeks back in a different context we were talking about how uh i think we were talking about the perceptions of anti-semitism in the world or amongst american jews versus israeli jews and how we perceive ourselves in the world and so on and so forth and i was mentioning to my sister who lives in minneapolis how uh how the how israel is going to be the country that receives the vaccine we're all going to get vaccinated first basically we're, we're going to be going to be very swift here and Israel will be the first country officially to have you know, vaccinated its population. And in my mind, as, as, a, as a Jew living in Israel for many, many years, I went to this place of like, wow, that's something to be really proud of. And that's something that's really miraculous or, or very fortunate and good for us. And the first thing she said to me coming back, and she's never lived here, the first thing she said is, wow, they're going to really think that the Jews... Uh, you know, that's going to cause gonna a lot of anti-Semitism. Anti yeah. That's going to cause a ton of anti-Semitism. And, and in my mind, I was like, how could you even think that? That's like an awful thing to think. And then I'm like, wait a second. Going back into my old, like, you know, before living here mindset of like, yeah, she's right. People will probably say, you know, of course, the Jews got out of the coronavirus the first. Yeah, you know what? I, I've, I'm living here for so long. And I'm kind of at the point where we're damned if we do and we're damned if we don't. So we might as well do what's <laughs> good I, I, I totally agree with that sentiment, by the way. I think that uh, right now we're on track to become the first country to be, uh, you know, 
COVID free because of a vaccine. And there are a few countries out there that are COVID free because of, you know, they practiced uh, good social distancing and et cetera. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think there's going to be a lot of jealousy, especially the given US what's going on in the US. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's pretty hard all around the world. And, and in addition to that, there's these mutations, um, which, uh, which I'd like to talk about a little yeah, bit. I want, to, I want to get into that next, uh, but, but do you have other slides? You have a bunch of cool looking slides and a, like I said, we've been following <laughs> you um, online as you post these. Uh, are there slides that you want to get into first before we get into the mutations? Yeah. Well, uh, any more just, optimism you want to share with us before you scare the living shit out of all of us? <laughs> uh, well, um, some, some optimism here is that these slides actually relate to the mutation. <laughs> do it. So, so do, you want to, do you want to explain what mutations are first? And we're not talking yeah. about X-Men here. We're not talking well, about superpowers. I was thinking about the Ninja Turtles. Yeah, also. Yeah. <laughs> um, so these mutations are actually, um, it's, pretty, it's a pretty fascinating topic. So I, I mentioned earlier that the coronavirus is based on RNA, which is the less stable cousin of DNA. Mm -hmm. um, and what that means is that it, the less stable it, it cousin has, that shows up at holidays and gets drunk <laughs> and, and fights with everyone. <laughs> um, and uh, so the RNA is is um, not as efficient at, at copying itself, and what that means is that there's more mistakes, okay. um, and and that's what a mutation is. A mutation is a mistake. You have a piece of code. Um, a letter A gets swapped out for a letter G. By accident, just a random mistake. That's what. That's as simple as that. Happens in our body all the time. You know, your cells when they when they replicate, they often have mutations. And then usually, what happens is the mutant cell ends up, uh, you know, going through isn't able to survive because of its mutation and, and it dies. Um, same thing with the viruses. A lot of them. What happens when a mutant cell in our body, one that just happens naturally, succeeds somehow? What What's the result of that? That is a good question. Um, I mean, powers. <laughs> in a way, in a way, I'm gonna, in a way, I'm gonna say yes, Dan. Juicy horns, a third eye. <laughs> um, in a way, in a way, yes. Um, I mean, if you buy into the whole theory of evolution, um, as uh, you know, some people in this country do not. <laughs> um, essentially, that's what evolution is that your cells uh, had some sort of mistake and it ended up being a beneficial mistake. You developed eyes, you know? <laughs> one day, you know, there, there was beings without eyes. One day a cell got a mistake and developed an eye. I mean, it's obviously I'm exaggerating. It's, it's you know, usually very subtle changes that um, eventually take hold and spread throughout the entire population because it's an advantageous mutation. If it's a disadvantageous mutation, then that cell or that being will just die and won't get passed on. But if it's something that's advantageous, then it'll survive better and become stronger. And yeah, I mean, the human species is still evolving. You know, if you might have a cell that gives you uh, laser vision um, and then you'll, you know, that species will be able to eradicate all the other non-laser vision people on the planet and humans will only have laser vision from now on. I, I'm often told that I am way back on the evolutionary chain and I'm still kind of <laughs> part gorilla monkey. 
we were in the Smithsonian a couple of years ago and they had a a fake caveman. And it looked like you. It looked exactly <laughs> like me. It looked exactly like me. That's a handsome caveman. <laughs> yeah. Um, so so I, that that's evolution kind of in our cells. And, yeah. and from my understanding, it's got to have a purpose, right? There's an evolution towards a purpose. That's what survives. Are these, are these virus, uh, they're not even cells, are these, vi- these floating virus code particle dust things, are they, so, so you're saying they're not, are they purposefully mutating for their own survival or, are, or is it just random, you know, totally, hypos? Totally random. It's uh, they have they have no volition they have no intelligence uh, absolutely no desires no they gain no benefit from anything. Um, it's uh, it's, it's you feel good or bad for them. Don't feel bad. We should get a virus on the show and talk to it. <laughs> Don't feel bad if you step on a virus by accident. <laughs> um, it's it's but what happens is they have these random mutations in their RNA and since it's so such an unstable particle to begin with they mutate at a much higher rate than us humans do, which have more stable DNA. Um, and on top of that, they are replicating way, way faster than, than the human species. Like I said before, one virus particle enters a cell and millions of viruses are produced from one cell and they infect other cells in your body, etc. On top of that, we're having, you know, billions of people around the world already infected. It just creates this evolution uh, evolutionary opportunity on such a mass scale um, that I, I don't know if uh, humanity has ever witnessed this kind of evolution take place at such a mass scale before, um, at least not with the, the tools we have nowadays that, that have the ability to track it. Hmm. Um, uh, you, and, you said there are, what, what did you say, one to the 30th 30 power? 31st power. One to uh, the 31st power? 10 to the 31st. Yeah. 10, 10 to the 31st power of virus particles floating around the world. And so if any of those go into human with our millions of cells and each one reproduces millions of times. So, so you're saying a, a bunch of these kind of get the code wrong as they're copying and that's what the mutation is. Yes. Um, I just want to separate that there's, you know, the 10 to the 31st power is talking about all viruses in the world. Okay. And, and now we're focusing on a very specific virus, uh, the, uh, the novel coronavirus. And, and this novel coronavirus is, you know, many, there's, I don't know the exact number of virus particles of, of this one around the world, but it's a very high number. And, and they're competing with each other to infect the next host, not because they want to, again, just because whichever one is better at infecting the next host will eventually infect more people. Um, so if one of them has a random mutation that makes it, survive a little bit longer in the air, makes it travel a little farther, makes it stick to your cells and your throat a little bit better, it's going to have an evolutionary advantage. can shoot three-pointers better. <laughs> um, so so this, this, this happens over time, that these, these mistakes happen, and then all of a sudden you get a more effective and a more transmissible or perhaps more deadly virus that begins spreading even faster uh, around the world. Uh, hold um, on. We're, we're having the audio thing with the clicking again. All right. I'm going to switch. You sound like you're doing an impression of a velociraptor. Remember the, or was it, <laughs> yeah, a little bit, a little bit. It could be, right, just, maybe it's a battery. The frilled lizard. 
um, I don't know. Can you hear me okay now? Yeah, you're fine. So, okay. so when, when we hear about the British mutation, the South African mutation, the Colorado mutation, what else is there? There's a Colorado mutation? Yeah, right? Am I, am I correct on this? Actually, I, I haven't heard about that one. Uh-oh. <laughs> you heard it here. You heard it here. Dan seems to be the expert on the coronavirus mutations. No, I, just, I, I may have mixed up with something. I, I heard it was either that or like... <laughs> no, there's... 2020 has been a hilarious year for a while. I was sharing kind of like, I, I think the news was having fun with this or kind of, uh, you know, memes on Facebook that like every month there was like, you know, there's murder hornets and then there was like, you know, squirrels that overdosed on heroin and, and like every different, like, you know, a tsunami that was going to spit fireballs. Like every month there was a different something that was happening. And I was, I was kind of amusing myself by saying, okay, this is what June's going to bring. This is what July is going to bring. <laughs> Colorado had a few things that popped up on the news radar. Um, I'll, I'll have to Google it, but I recall there being possibly some kind of Colorado mutation. Anyway, we, we know about the South African and so the British. There, Do you know anything about them? Can you talk about them? Sure. So there, there have been, I mean, I'm not surprised to hear that there is a Colorado mutation. There have been I'm hundreds of mutations. Um, one of the promising things about coronavirus, if there were any when, when it started, was that it seemed to be a virus that was less likely to mutate as, as compared with other viruses. The flu virus, for example, mutates at an extremely high rate, which makes it very difficult to develop a vaccine for it. And the coronavirus, in the beginning, they were saying that there's discovering a new strain maybe once, twice a month on average. Um, nowadays, <clears throat> so now we're seeing it mutate a little bit more and the mutations are a little bit more um, I would say uh, it affects how the virus transmits a little bit more than it used to. Um, and what, what these, these new mutations in particular, I mean, are getting a lot of attention be, and rightfully so, because a lot of people are arguing that they're more transmissible, mm. um, which means that if somebody has it, they're gonna spread it to more people than they would have the, the original strain. Um, and when I first started hearing about this, I was actually pretty skeptical. Um, because coronavirus is, uh, the way it primarily spreads, um, is by, by super spreader events. Are you guys familiar with a super spreader event? I'm familiar uh, from conversations with you, uh, but I'd be glad to (laughs) explain to our audience. Sure. Sure. So he's like superstars, uh, by the way, is this like, uh. <laughs> super. <laughs> Something like that. Um, there's uh, so the classic number um, when you're talking about a virus spreading is R. It's called the R value of the virus. Okay. And the R value describes um, if a person is infected with the virus, how many people on average will they spread the virus to? So the R of COVID is, I think, in the wild, it was estimated to be around 2.3, which means that uh, without any social distancing or masks, if you got the virus, you're likely to spread it to 2.3 other people. Um, And what they found out, though, was that most people spread it to either one person or even less than one person, meaning that, you know, people would go home to their families infected with coronavirus wife and kids, not infect any of them. That was the, that was the typical case. Okay. You know, people think of coronavirus as incredibly infectious and it is, but only, only under certain circumstances that people don't yet really understand 
what really drives the spread of the virus are every once in a while, you get a person who's a super spreader and they have, they, instead of infecting one or nobody, they infect tens or even hundreds of people. There was a famous case of uh, the lawyer in New York who essentially kicked off the whole uh, New York coronavirus situation uh, where he went to a funeral, a bat mitzvah and a wedding, I think all within like two days while being infectious before it was you know, really known that mm-hmm. nobody was being protective at all in New York about this. They estimate, I think that he infected maybe 800 people, one guy. So that's really what, what drives the spread. I'm really of the- proud of <laughs> yeah. super spreader man i mean is, is this kind of like how we talk about you know the average family size in a given place is let's say two kids per family but that doesn't take into account that you have families with 10 kids and families with no kids right so it's, is this kind of like the same idea yeah yeah exactly except a, a much more extreme version of that right i mean they they estimate that 20 uh, percent of people that get corona are responsible for 80% of the spread. Wow. Uh, so that means that you know, 80% of people that are getting the virus are spreading the virus minimally. Um, and it's hard for people to understand that because it's like, if this virus is so dangerous, how could you say that there's an 80% chance that I'm barely gonna spread it? But that's, that's the reality. Nobody knows if they're going to be a super spreader or if they are a super spreader right now and they might be asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic and, and, and they might go ahead and infect 100 people the next day. And there's just no way to know, at least with our current understanding, if, if you are going to be somebody that's a super spreader or not. Um, okay, so, so here we have all of that, you know, all of that in mind. We now have these mutations. And, and what are they doing to the data? What are they doing to our ability to, to, to successfully fight the virus? What are they doing to the vaccine's ability to be effective against the, the spread of the virus? I, uh, I, just, I just want to point out, we looked it up while you were talking, and it's not a, it's not a Colorado mutation. It was the appearance of the British mutation in Colorado. I, uh, I, I read the headlines wrong. <laughs> um, there, there is a new, a new mutation, by the way, that I think was reported yesterday or the day before uh, in Japan. Ooh. So now there's there's another one and holy it, shit it's good it's Godzilla <laughs> <laughs> Japanese mutation <laughs> um, and 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 the mutation there is actually showing a lot of similarities to the British and South African mutation but it's not exactly the same um, so it's not exactly clear what the overlap or how it how it's how it got started. It, Anyway, a lot of mutations. Um, and the reason why I brought up the R is because it's an important aspect to understand how these mutations are going to, are affecting things already and how they're going to affect things in the future. Um, so there've been some studies and, and the post that I was mentioning uh, before to Dan uh, was, was about <clears throat> uh, what I posted on Facebook a few days or a week ago uh, is about these mutations. <clears throat> Sorry, one second. Thank <clears throat> and and the there's there's some some scary scary uh, evidence coming out now about these mutations. Um, and you might want to turn your headphones off and not listen. <laughs> um, so I'll I'll start off by uh, let's let me, let me see first. All right. So this is this is showing uh, here in Israel. Um, the percentage of the mutation spreading in Israel. 
from mid-December to the end of December. Um, this is, and by now, by the way, it's much higher. I think it's uh, past 20% by now. Um, and it shows essentially that the British, British mutation started probably in the early part of December <clears throat> and slowly becoming more and more prevalent in Israel that um, of all of the coronavirus tests done um, in Israel today, around 20% of them are the British mutation. And that's only going up. Do the, do the, corona t do the COVID tests know how to tell the difference between the mutations? The, some do. Uh, not every corona test does, uh, but there are some special tests that they run it through and, and then they do gene sequencing and are able to identify uh, whether it's mutation or not. Um, so pretty soon this, this mutation is gonna be everywhere in Israel. And why is that scary? Um, so this, this slide is showing, um, hang on, let me, let me, let me uh, show you, yeah. This slide is, is showing um, that even during a lockdown, this was this is this is showing you um, the number of LTLAs in in the United Kingdom. An LTLA, I don't know, remember exactly what it stands for, but it's a specific geographical region. Um, and this is showing that during a lockdown period, um, the number of regions that saw an increase in the mutation, which is called B117, um, where uh, there were about 200 regions that saw the B117 mutation increase while the other older versions of the virus were decreasing, okay? So that means that even during the lockdown, uh, which you know you would expect all virus strains to decrease, this one was increasing. Okay, so it's uh, was it yeah. that there were more people getting sick with the virus, or that the amongst people getting sick, the virus was the more prevalent strain? So, in this case, there were some regions that were, you know, overall fewer people were getting sick. Some regions were overall more people were getting sick, but it was shown that within a given region, the percentage it didn't matter if there were more or fewer people getting sick in general. What what it shows is that the, um, the, the mutation was always gaining steam, which means that even with a strict lockdown, people were still, people that were infected with the mutated virus were still spreading it to other people. But was the lockdown still effective in preventing more people from actually getting sick with COVID while they were at home? So in, in, uh, in this particular case, I think it was kind of a mixed bag. Um, if, if they, they had this lockdown and there was only the B117 mutation, this lockdown would not have been effective. And that's, that's the real scary part about the mutation. Essentially, what scientists have shown is that this mutation is uh, about, has an R value that's 0.5 higher than the original R value. Okay, 0.5 means what in practical terms? Yeah, so it, if you think about it, it doesn't sound like anything too dramatic, um, but I want to show, show this slide to give you a better sense of what kind of different R values mean. Um, an R value of one means that um, one sick person will infect one other sick person on average. Okay, so if you have 100 people that are sick in the country and the R is one, you'll stay 
at an average of 100 people for the next year because you know one person will infect one you won't have growth you won't have decline okay anytime you go below one you're going to start having decline of the virus and eventually if you stay below one long enough the virus will disappear like what happened in uh, New Zealand and Wuhan and Australia that have managed to uh, essentially get get down to zero cases. Um, but if the virus goes above one, then you have exponential growth. Um, and this, this graph here is showing um, Israel during the previous lockdown. Um, the blue line is showing the R value in Israel, meaning at the lowest point over here, we had an R value of 0.6. That means every sick person was infecting on average 0.6 other people, right? Um, and we were seeing decline in the virus. Now, if this was the mutation, instead of 0.6, during our time when we were at our strictest lockdown, this 0.6 would have been 1.1, right? An estimate of about 0.5 higher than 0.6. Okay, so that means that even during our strictest lockdown, we still would have been experiencing exponential growth of the virus. That is why it's so scary. And then, you know, when you're talking about a non-lockdown period, forget about it. You're talking about crazy ex exponential growth, way more, way beyond what we've seen in other places. Um, and if you look at, you know, graphs of the UK recently, you've seen... Uh, there was, there was a joke going around that um, of the recent graphs of, of the UK, which basically, basically show this giant spike they said when they said flatten the curve, they didn't specify in which direction, right? It's now it's it's going flat straight up, um, and it's kind of like this this graph in Ireland where you see Ireland they they've shown you've seen recently um, a significant growth in the mutation spread in Ireland, and they're just going they're out of control with the number of cases lately. So this is okay. Yeah. So okay. It's a runaway train. I understand. It's not good. We're going to be above one, even if we're completely and totally locked down like we are now. Uh, even if we're like Italy first wave style lockdown where we're literally living in our homes, even if we're China style, they lock us in our home lockdown. We're still somehow spreading this virus problem. Maybe not China. If you're not literally not leaving your house, yeah. you're not. Yeah. Gonna... China, China got the R down. Yeah. I, I don't know what, but it was, yeah. it was really, it was low enough to control even the mutate, mutated virus. Okay. So, the, the, so the... Wait, 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 let me, let me get my question. So the vaccine, it still works on the, this mutation of the virus. So Pfizer came out a couple days ago and announced that they are confident that it works against the British and South African mutations. Um, I don't know how confident they are. It seems like they're pretty confident if they're, you know, publishing something like that. Um, so it seems like we can rest easy for now that the vaccine will continue to be effective. And the other bright side of this new vaccine technology is that as soon as a new mutation is identified, they can relatively quickly uh, ramp up, uh, you know, tweak the vaccine to match the new virus, the new mutation, and start cracking it out and spreading it around the world. I mean, it takes time to, you know, manufacture right. so, some of these things. So, so, so we're set up here in Israel to really kind of, you know, put the, uh, as they say, the proof is in the, where, the, where the pudding is, you know, it's, it's, we're, we're really is, going Is there to, an Israeli equivalent to that saying? No, there's not. And I, I, I've tried for years to try to figure out if there's something equivalent. I've explained that to my wife and she's like, 
What is pudding have to pudding. do with it? <laughs> Whatever, that's what they say. The proof is in the hummus. But we're going to see. We're going to see in a couple of months if this if this plan really does, you know, uh, uh, come to fruition. That uh, in a couple of months, millions of us will have been vaccinated. We will have vaccinated herd immunity, or so is the plan uh, here in Israel, and we will see just how effective the the vaccine really is on on the current strains of the virus. I saw today in the news that a gorilla at a zoo got COVID. Yeah. So Was he all right? I don't know. I think they're in quarantine now. So the thing is, is like, okay, so let's say Israel is, uh, we're safe now. Okay, we've all been vaccinated. Our borders are still shut because the rest of the world doesn't have the vaccines at the rate that we're able to get them and stuff really spirals out of control, which seems to be kind of the way it would go if you didn't have the vaccine with a virus that had a R value of, you know, whatever it is, ridiculously high. Um, so we just become like an island. Basically, we're New Zealand and in the no, middle of... No, then all the countries that, that have things under control, uh, like you, you have a sharing system. Like Remember the first time after the first closure when we got down to almost zero cases and then we had the, the travel sharing program with like Greece and Bulgaria and, and whatever? Yeah. Uh, right? That's kind of what you end up doing. All the countries that are more or less vaccinated, you start. That's, yeah. And that's that's probably what's going to happen. Um, although, I mean, if we are vaccinated at a high enough level, we may be able to let in a few people that are infected into our country and not suffer such significant consequences. Um, because hopefully most people will be immune to the disease anyhow. So can you, can you address, somebody asked earlier, uh, if we are vaccinated, what is the, let me, let me actually read. I, I lost the comment. Oh, you lost um, the comment. But, but the comment, the, the question was from Dina. I don't know if she's still listening. If you're still listening, say hi to us, Dina. Um, the question that's kind of on all our minds is, if you're vaccinated, yes, you're immune from getting COVID yourself, but are you still a carrier? Can you still spread it? That's a, it's an interesting question um, that currently there is no definitive answer to it. Um, so <clears throat> think the, there, I think there is an ongoing study on, with the Oxford vaccine that is looking into finding that answer. Um, you know, it seems weird, right? It seems like if you're immune from getting the virus, how could you possibly uh, transmit it? And, and the reason is because we don't actually know if people that are getting the vaccine are immune. What we do know based on the studies is that they are testing negative to the disease. Mm. Um, and they're not showing any significant symptoms. Well, doesn't that mean they're immune to the disease? Not necessarily. Um, because it's, you know, you can, how do we test people for the virus? We put a swab in their nose and their mouth. It's possible that the vaccine is causing the virus to spread to other places in the body um, where it causes less harm. And therefore these people are showing, you know, much less serious symptoms. Um, and it could be that, you know, it just isn't going to places where we're testing for the vaccine for, for the virus. Um, in which case people would still be carriers and would still very possibly be the spreaders of the virus, likely to a lesser degree if it's not sitting in their nose and mouth. You know, it's but would it be safe deeper? Would it yeah, be right. safe? How, how's it coming out? If it's I mean, well, that's uh, how it's coming out, it's in your nose and mouth. You sneeze, you cough. Well, I was going to ask also, and that's that's a good point. But like, would it be safe to say that two people that have been vaccinated are safe to be in each other's presence without having to fear that they're going to give each other the virus since they've both been vaccinated against the virus? So. In Otherwise, general, like, <laughs> if we're constantly just living in fear of COVID for the rest of existence, then why even have yeah. a vaccine? So, uh, 
first of all, I think that um, behavior never changes. What's the point? So I think that even if you are uh, tr able to be a carrier for the virus um, after getting the vaccine, it seems likely, which by the way, seems like it's, uh, I would say more likely that you're not a carrier, but that still, still remains to be seen. Um, but even if you are a carrier, it seems likely that you will be um, able to spread it much less. So the virus will accomplish two things. It'll prevent you from getting sick, from showing symptoms and you from going to the hospital and possibly dying. Um, and it will also make it so that the R will drop significantly, right? I mean, if, if everyone's getting vaccinated and spreading the virus, even 10% less, that's, that's, a, that's a big deal. Um, and, and likely they're spreading it much less than that, even if they are spreading it at all. Mm -hmm. So to answer your question, um, I think experts still recommend people with that have gotten the vaccine to be careful, to wear masks and to not crowd in large places, especially if you're in a high risk group. Um, I think part of that is because it's so early. So we don't have so much data on how well you're protected. I think in the next month or two, we'll hopefully have a better idea of how um, safe you have to be uh, once, you, once you've been vaccinated. Right. Well, let me ask you kind of, uh, maybe we'll wrap up the COVID section of this uh, conversation. Um, but, but I'll ask you kind of a, a dumb question for, for maybe a lot of us, uh, including Sorry. Uh, kind of a, maybe a dumb question for a lot of us, including myself. Is there any fear, any, should, should people be worried about the vaccines in any kind of way? Um, I, I think, I think there's been enough people that have been, I mean, it's still early on, but I mean, a lot of people are concerned. A lot of people are like, yeah, let me wait a few months until everyone else. Should, should people be concerned? Uh, first of all, it's not, not a dumb question at all. Um, yeah, look, there's, there's a, a new, it's essentially a new medicine, a new pharmaceutical product. Um, <clears throat> so I think it is reasonable to be somewhat concerned. We don't know long-term effects of, of, the, of this vaccine. Um, on the other hand, it's, it's been thoroughly tested. And also people are very concerned about the fact that it was, um, developed so quickly. Right. Um, How but, was it uh, developed so quickly, by the way, you said it's a miracle. Right, right, right. So I started talking about that. Uh, Barney Graham, the guy that, that kind of pioneered this uh, MRNA vaccine technology. Not to be confused with the pioneer of the graham cracker. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that. Autogram. <laughs> So um, I guess people are confused. <laughs> so, uh, no so, uh, so Barney Graham, um, he um, essentially developed this uh, this vaccine technology, and he he didn't have a, uh, he had some places where he showed that it worked, and he kind of tried to get it to work on uh, I believe it was uh, SARS or MERS. And then that kind of petered out. So people were like, eh, we don't, we don't really need you to work on that right now. And then coronavirus came along and he, he was like, all right, this is, this is my chance to my shine. Time to shine. <laughs> um, Axonologists uh, of the world unite. <laughs> <laughs> and he got the, uh, the genome of the coronavirus within a day, he had already developed the MRNA vaccine technology within a day. He, uh, which is astonishing. I mean, so he just had everything already set up to, to hit the ground running as soon as the genome was ready. 
Um, and within, you know, he, so he was able to start animal trials immediately. And he already had contacts at Moderna and, and uh, I believe Pfizer as well. Within six weeks, there were already vials of the vaccine going out for the first clinical trial. Within six before, weeks? Within six weeks, before the first patient in the US died of Corona, there were already clinical trials starting on this vaccine. Um, so it's, it's an astonishingly fast way of development, but not because they were cutting corners, just because the technology was already existing. Mm. Um, and and, and you know, there, it's been tested on tens of thousands of people. Uh, I mean, in the, in the clinical trials, it's already been injected into millions of people. Um, there's no reason that any scientist is aware of that it should that, that it would cause long-term harm or damage. Uh, there is an unknown. We don't we don't know for sure, but the risk of getting corona is so far outweighed by this tiny, tiny, tiny risk of you know one in a million that you might have some long-term effects from the vaccine. Um, you know, even to healthy young people, there's there's serious concerns of long-term risks from from COVID. So, um, you know, the, the, yeah, definitely uh, the safer option by a million. Sure. Does mRNA, does this technology uh, be, and I don't want to belittle what this has done, but are there other applications of this? Um, and maybe we can use this to kind of transition to the field of medical technologies and, and kind of talk about um, your, your, your actual work and, and what you do. Um, besides educate us all about COVID, um, what other kind of applications could, could, be, could this technology be used for? Um, it, it could be used for uh, targeting other kinds of diseases. Uh, people are talking about it being used to target uh, all different kinds of cancers. Uh, but before I move away from COVID, I just want to say one, one more thing. Um, and that's just to uh, kind of sound the alarm bells a little bit for, for the United States right now. Um, the United States is American listeners. I see Nancy. I see Bob here. Anyone else? If that's if that's Nancy Pelosi, please pay special <laughs> attention here. <laughs> Not Nancy Pelosi. <laughs> um, it's right now. America has the highest rates of corona infection, highest rates of corona death related deaths that it's ever had, um, highest in the world by far, and continuing to rise at a scary rate. And this is before they're seeing the impacts of the mutations. Right now, the mutations are at a relatively low level in the US. Once the mutations start getting fiddled, and, and they will, there's no question about it. Um, we're talking about within a month or two, almost everybody in the US that has corona is going to be infected by a mutated version of corona. And I, I could be a little off on the timing, but um, the point is it's going to happen before everyone's vaccinated. And if things don't get under control really soon, you know, serious lockdowns in the US, I mean, what's been happening up until now is going to look like child's play compared to what's going to happen over the next few months. Um, so if anybody who has any sort of influence in the US can uh, try to, you know, get things to lock down a little bit tighter, try to get things under control, reduce the spread, slow the spread until the vaccine is more, you know, available for people to get, um, yeah, do what you can. I think that's that's the bigger problem, right? I mean, they the the scientists and epidemiologists, vaccinologists, doctors, even policymakers to an extent, 
they're aware of what you just said. It's this is not, you know, this is not a. It should not be a surprise to them if we're if we're being. And, and I think those being, people, right. I, th- I think I think the people who are concerned with this and who understand the threats are the ones being careful in the U.S. So they're the ones who are isolating. They're the ones who are wearing masks. Right. I, I think that the decision not to lock down is is look for 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 you know trying not to be super controversial and it's nothing to do with politics but but it's it's politics right it's it's <laughs> way to avoid politics you have you have on the one hand you have the the makeup of the you know the american systems of of law the composition of the united states as a union of states each of you know with their own ability to make sovereign policy you can't you know the federal government can't institute a national lockdown by law they don't have that kind of power and secondly you have you know, in multiple jurisdictions in, you know, 50 different states that are coming up with their own set of policies. And it's very, very difficult in such a, in such a reality for people to get on the same page. And there doesn't seem to be in wide swaths of the population of the United States, a political interest to start to pay attention to the things that we're talking about here and the things that you're passionately, you know, warning about. And, and it seems like it is the perfect storm scenario for people to, you know, you know, I told you so position where, Unfortunately, many, many people are going to suffer uh, and, and the economy and, you know, I'm not just talking about suffering from having COVID. I'm talking about suffering from from all of the different ways that one can suffer and the world will suffer as a, as a result. And, and we're seeing this manifest itself in, in many different ways uh, right now. So so like you said, I mean, it's it seems like, you know, we really need a miracle here for people in the United States uh, to to what, what I believe is to take up their what they should be which is the world leader in like they've been the leader in many, many different parts of, of, of the history of, of uh, modern, you know, past 200 and what are we, 230 years and counting 250 years. I'm not going to do the, the math in my head, but since uh, world war, since world war no, I'm saying like the American the concept of American excellence or, or American exceptionalism and all these sorts of things is, you know, one would think that America would want to be the world leader in, everything covid you know, yeah, but, but it, is, it is it is very in order, I, i'm not romanticizing i'm no, saying i know it, but it, in, in order to what has led to american exceptionalism or, or the american what makes america unique is ultra individualism it's a country based on you as an individual can do whatever you want right. and ironically what you need as a society to take covid on is ultra conformism and that's why East right. Asian societies, which right, are based right. on Confucianism, are much more able to to um, get in line. Um, whereas in America, you know, that founding ethos of America is me. I'm an individual. I have freedom. I have agency. Government should be a, as little involved in my life as possible. And I know that's a huge debate in America, and I, I hope we'll talk about it next week. Um, but but you know, the the kind of the thing that makes America America, and that frontier you know, tame the Wild West ethos, that startup ethos, that kind of whole, uh, you know, I, I'm a free person, I have control over my own uh, life is, is exactly the opposite of what you need to mobilize a society right. to do. Well, and, and to put it in simpler terms, it seems like COVID is the kryptonite to America's Superman. <laughs> in a way. In, in a way, yeah. I mean, and, and a lot of the things you just described, by the way, I think are true about Israel as well, right? You know, Israel is very you know, be startup nation, do things differently. And um, yet we fared significantly better than the U.S. Because um, I think because of our, our uh, first of all, we're, we, we are more of a collective than is America. America is, is 
you know, part, I think part of the challenge for America is that they haven't had really something to rally around in a long time. And, and, you know, it used to be wars, but there hasn't been an obvious enemy to America since 9-11, right? You need an obvious enemy. And we here in Israel, sadly, we have obvious enemies that we can rally around. And you see when we have war, when there's, you know, flagrant anti-Semitism, we know how to rally around the flag. We've done it when, when there's terrorism, when there's war, we know how to all come together or, or the vast majority of society comes together. With COVID, it's been a little different. And you see that here because it's not a visible enemy. But I think that at least during the first closure, we were able to, to kind of rally around the flag. I'll give credit to, uh, to Netanyahu and to the government. They, they were kind of able to get a rally around the flag type moment for at least a few months until too many government and other senior bureaucrats and government and elected officials were flouting the regulations, I think, to the point where, where people in society were saying, well, if the president and the prime minister and this minister and that minister and the police chief are going to be flouting the rules, then why do we have to follow the rules? Um, but, but they managed you know, to do it at least for some time. And, and I think, again, because of the wars and the terror in the military, we, we, we have a better concept of social unity and we know how to rally around the flag a little better. And I think that's always been the challenge in the U.S., in the U.S., unless you have a very clear outside enemy, it, it, it's it's hard to say that it's really a society. It's hard to say that it's really, you know, a, um, a whole, you know, being in that sense. So let me ask you this, and, and I'm sorry, we I, we do want to get to <laughs> other topics, but I, you bring up an interesting point. I think a lot of people in America, um, and myself included, and I, I know you, you as well, they want to they want to put hopes in the new administration that they're going to be able to get a handle around this. But you're talking about cultural or societal as, uh, attributes of the American yeah. we'll, people. We'll call it We're, cultural DNA. Sure, the not, cultural not DNA RNA. in America. Does it seem like any administration could get their hand around this, or is it something that's in the American DNA that's that's just, like I said, kryptonite, I, COVID I think, access kryptonite? I, I, think, I think certain administrations, certain leaderships, leaders um, could do better than others, okay? Um I, I think whether you supported him or not, okay, um, Trump and, and kind of that administration was not even, I don't think they were even trying to unite all of the American people. It was a very much a divide and conquer strategy, okay? And, and I'm not, you know, I'm not even judging or saying who is right and who's wrong. I'm, I'm not even getting into that debate. I'm just saying it was, it was kind of a divisive type, um, us versus them type mentality. I think if you have a leadership that's more conciliatory, that's more let's come together, that's more we have this challenge and we as an American people are going to rise to it, you, you'll have better success. That said, I think um, fundamentally speaking, the DNA of American society lends to success in certain areas and a lot bigger challenges in other areas. I think the ability of of uh, um, you know, the, the classic American success story, okay? The, 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 the concept that a person can move to America and rise from nothing to something, I think that ability exists more in America still to this day than it does anywhere else in the world, okay? If you know, if you, you need a lot of luck and if you have the support system and if you have the right background, all that, you know, I don't want to get in, into anything about privilege, but the, the ability for a nobody to become a somebody in America I think is, is better than anywhere else in the world. At the same time, because of the lack of social cohesion, the ability for someone to completely fall between the cracks and, and remain a nobody and, 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 and remain poor and just kind of get stuck in that, you know, uh, cycle is also bigger than 
anywhere else in the developed world. Okay, I'm not talking about the underdeveloped world, right. but in the developed world. So your ability to become really successful, really powerful, really rich, really whatever, it is, you know, kind of up here on the, where are my hands here, on the bell curve. And you, at you the need, same you time- need, You need graphs, yeah, charts. Yeah, graphs like, here. Um, and, and, but at the same time, the, 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 the chance that you won't succeed and that you'll get stuck between the cracks and there won't be a social system helping you is also just as big. And I think that's just, that, that part of hyper-individualism is just in the, baked into the DNA of American society. Um, but again, I want to save that for next week. Uh, we want to come back to medical innovation um, and, and, and kind of that whole world. Um, wh- what are you working on these days? What, where are you working? What are you doing? What is a, 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 a vesticular, no. vestibular, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I have to even go back to my notes because I didn't remember the term. What is, vestibular what is it, prosthesis? prosthesis and, and what is BrainQ doing? So those are two unrelated questions. Um, I'll start with the uh, vestibular prosthesis since that's, uh, you know, in chronological order from what I worked on. Um, so I, uh, I, I, I studied biomedical engineering. I did my PhD in Johns Hopkins University. Um, and, you know, the brain always fascinated me and I thought it would be pretty cool to work on something where you're, you know, combining fancy technology, new technology with communicating with the brain. And um, this, this was, there was an opportunity. There was a lab in Johns Hopkins developing this uh, new device that was designed to help dizzy people. Um, it, there's a disorder known as bilateral vestibular disorder, extremely rare, maybe around a million people in the world have it. Um, sounds like a big number, but as far as diseases go, it's, you know, tiny. Okay. Um, and there's not, there's no treatment for it. People get it and they're just dizzy. They can't walk it's straight. Constantly they either constantly dizzy or just very imbalanced. They have a difficult time walking without help. They can't drive at all. Um, basically inside your inner ear, there's something called the vestibular system. Um, and essentially there are these small donut shaped fluid filled uh, things that are able to sense how your head is moving. Um, and they're incredibly accurate and incredibly sensitive. And they're able to tell your brain, you know, if your head is spinning, if you're falling, etc. cetera. And, and you're able to respond very quickly. It's actually the fastest reflex in the human body is called the uh, vestibular ocular reflex. If, if you turn your head, your eyes automatically turn in the opposite direction of your head. So that way you're staying looking at whatever it is you're looking at. Um, and that way, if you're driving in a car, is this why I get car sick? Uh, it's related. Yes, yes, it is. Um, I'll explain that in a second. And it, basically, if you're driving in a bumpy road, for example, your head's bouncing all over the place, but you can still read a traffic sign or see pretty clearly, even though theoretically your right. eye would. Should it's be like, you, have, it's like you have a built-in gimbal. Exactly. Yeah, it's like optical image stabilization for mm-hmm. those familiar with cameras. A built-in. A what? A gimbal. What's a gimbal? It um, imagine this microphone. Is it like okay. Brian Gumble? Is that like no, it's not Brian Gumble. See my fingers in the microphone. Yeah, it's effectively a gimbal. If I'm if I'm jumping around at a bumpy road because there's a pivot point on the on on the on the axis. That's a word. That's a that's a word. Gravity is that a word? Not that. Is that a word? Is gimbal? I've heard it. 
I've heard it. Yeah. Wow, you told that out in Scrabble. Gimbal. It's I'm a, a word. I'll, I'll tell you why. <laughs> Gimbal. I, I know because we're looking for uh, we're we're looking for cameras for this show and for other stuff that uh, you know I, that that uh, we might produce. <laughs> um, and you need to find something when you're making YouTube videos that you're able to you know be outside and make videos and and you know in motion videos where as you're walking down the street or as you're you know running or jumping whatever you're doing that the camera remains steady steady. And that system that holds the camera in place, even though you're moving around, is called a gimbal. Okay, you also wow. see it in a, uh, in, in, in a, in a, uh, what's it called? In a, it's like a gyroscope. Yeah. It has a gimbal on it. You, you see it sometimes in heads-up displays on, in, in aircraft. I, I, think, I think you just earned your new nickname. What's my name? <laughs> the gimbal. The, g- <laughs> the <right>. gimbal. <laughs> <laughs> you have your wonky areas. I have mine. <laughs> um, so, gimbal away, Nathan. Sorry, gimbal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's um, so in in the eye, you essentially have something like a gimbal that stabilizes your vision on whatever it is you're looking at, even when there's bumps in the road or whatever else. Um, and that's the fastest reflex in the human body. It takes roughly uh, seven milliseconds for your eye to respond to a head rotation. Um, you know, most reflexes are, you know, in the order of tens of milliseconds, if not more than a hundred. So this is by far the fastest one. Um, and if you have some sort of dis- disease in your inner ear, then your vestibular system will stop working. And um, then you'll, you'll essentially be left without this uh, corrective balance mechanism in your head. Um, and that causes all sorts of problems, um, as, as I mentioned earlier. Um, no treatment for, for these kinds of people. And what we developed is essentially um, a replacement vestibular system. Um, the advances in uh, cell phone technology that uh, basically, you know, cell phones are all able to detect when you rotate them. Um, they've basically miniaturized and uh, also made, made them very efficient, these tiny motion sensors. So we developed a chip and uh, this is what I worked on in my, in my doctorate to, to develop this chip that has uh, three motion sensors on it called gyroscopes that are able to detect rotation. Um, and then each one of those um, gyroscopes was connected to a wire that s- stimulates the nerve inside the ear from uh, the, the nerve that used to get information from the biological vestibular system was now getting its information from this electronic microchip that we would implant in people's in first in animals' heads and then eventually in people's heads. Um, so I spent many years in my, in my doctorate working on developing this, this technology and testing it in uh, animals, first chinchillas and then monkeys. And um, eventually once- Busy chinchillas walking around until you- <laughs> Yeah, yeah, they were, uh, they were cute little chinchillas. I felt, felt a little bad for them. Um, but we did uh, restore their sense of balance for a little bit <laughs> before before they were sadly sacrificed, as we call it in the uh, medical community. Oh no! <laughs> Are these animals, by the way, that had this naturally, or did you have to trigger something for them to get? Um, they did not have it naturally. I mean, I'm sure some uh, of them. Let's move on. I don't know anything about this world. So I'm just curious. So yeah, it's. Um, you know, the, the sadder aspect of medical research that you have to cause animal suffering in order, I, mean, I shouldn't say you have to, but m- much of uh, sure. medical advancement is caused through animal suffering. So I actually um, 
was responsible for causing dizziness in chinchillas. We essentially injected a drug into their ear that killed their vestibular cells. Um, so that way they would become dizzy. Um, and then I you know, implanted the microchip into their head and stimulated their ears uh, and then was able to give them back their sense of balance. So sort of a happy ending, I guess. <laughs> when you say microchip, I mean, what size of implant are we talking about here? Um, so let me bring up a slide for you. Ooh, like slide. Um, give me one second. So that's, um, so here's essentially the size of, <clears throat> the size of the vestibular prosthesis as it looks today. Um, so it's a, you know, uh, that's a tentacle coin right there. We're seeing that that's right. Okay. So for those American listeners, I don't know, what, what would you say? Like a nickel, let's say. Yeah. Like yeah. A little bit bigger. <laughs> About a nickel. Yeah. Um, and the microchip is housed inside this container over here. And, and that's it um, on top of the, the, the head, uh, the, the, or, or is implanted. So, so the procedure is you open up the skin right behind the ear and you place this microchip underneath a skin flap and then close up the skin. Hmm. And it sits entirely submerged underneath your skin. And, and this kind of long tail, um, you, uh, the surgeon drills a hole inside the bone of the head and puts that tail inside up against the nerves that it needs to stimulate. Wow. Uh, so what we're actually looking at here is actually called a cochlear implant, which is uh, a similar to the vestibular implant, except it, instead of giving pack, uh, people back their sense of balance, it actually gives them back their sense of hearing for deaf people. Um, that's something that's been around for decades. Um, actually, you know, close to, I think a million people in the world today have uh, functioning cochlear implants helping them hear. And we were kind of building off of this technology to develop vestibular implants. So you, you took the existing technology that can, can bring back hearing to hearing impaired people and you adapted it to people with, um, what's it called? What's the? Uh... Bilateral vestibular disorder. How, uh, how many people suffer from this disorder? Is it a million? Yeah, about a million in the world. In the world, okay. Yeah, so a tiny percentage of the population. Um, and we, you know, getting funding for this kind of medical device company is very difficult, right? Because, you know, you're talking about a disease that affects or a disorder that affects so few people, it's never, it's never going to be a big moneymaker. And that's, by the way, true of many medical devices in the world. Um, there's very few stories of a medical device that was created and went on to be a runaway success. Like the, the costs involved are so high. You know, you have a pharmaceutical where you make a drug, if it's a hit, boom, you can manufacture billions of pills and sell them at a premium, make a ton of money. Medical devices, you know, each one of these devices costs $10,000 or something to, to manufacture. Because of the scale, because of the complexity, what? Combination. Um, Mostly, I would say the bigger part of it has to do with the complexity. Um, you know, pharmaceutical, it's, it's, you know, you mix some chemicals together. I'm exaggerating a little bit, but the process costs very little to manufacture pills. Um, here, you're talking about fine craftsmanship, um, sure. many, many interconnected components. A lot of this has to be handmade. Um, it's, you know, 
just a lot of expensive technology in, inside of a medical device. Sorry, um, are you uh, on the patent for this device? I am on one patent. There's, uh, there's you know, many, many patents uh, that existed before I got involved in the process. And, uh, and after my, my PhD, um, my advisor and I, uh, and, and several and a few other people from the lab, um, started a company to help turn this technology into a marketable product um, called Labyrinth Devices. Um, another word for the vestibular system is the vestibular labyrinth, mm-hmm. um, which is annoyingly difficult to spell. So I don't recommend uh, choosing that name for another company. But um, so I, uh, I worked there kind of managing the R&D for the company for, uh, for a few years. And uh, we actually got you know, transition the technology that I worked on in my doctorate into a, uh, you know, marketable product that was, uh, by the time I left the company, we were ramping up towards clinical trials. Uh, so it was, it was pretty exciting to kind of see something that started out really in the basic science realm uh, and got to see it through to the point where it was implanted in humans. And now it's, it's been implanted in uh, a lot of people and it's been, uh, it's not quite, it's not approved for market use yet, but it's, it's still being studied and it's showing that it's, uh, it's really helping people. You know, it's amazing to see the sort that I've you put need, a lot of. You need, that, you need that emergency use authorization. <laughs> so, that's something that's tells me. Uh, that's where the, that's where the real money is now. Uh, but, but you may have yeah. said this. What? What? Uh, how long ago was this that uh, that this was developed? So I finished uh, my PhD in 2012, um, and then the company started at the same time. Um, I was I was the first employee, I believe, um, and then I, yeah, worked there for. So we I think we implanted the first person um, in about. Uh, I want to say 2016 or 2017. And this is this is in Baltimore. Yeah, so it was uh, it was based in Baltimore. That's really. Um, and cool. then we made Aliyah in 2015. Um, so that's got to be interesting too. I mean, you're you're you you've done a PhD now. You're in Baltimore. You have this this you're involved in this company that's making this technology, and you know obviously you're here. And I, I see you're wearing a kippah, so you know. You, you you were inspired to come to Israel based on ideology and and we're all there in the same place but it's in terms of for your career that Israel has a as an established uh, or you know startup uh, ecosystem here and, and and technology is and innovations is, is a part of our DNA here in Israel so in, in terms of a career move that's that's also a good thing to do or or we're at the time that people look at it like wait what are you're going where now? Yeah. Were you going forward in your career by moving here, or was it kind of putting your career aside for ideological purposes? So, very, very good questions. Um, and at the time, I wasn't sure. Um, it's 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 really hard to know. I mean, even if you get a sense of what a general community of uh, of a field is like in a specific country, you never know what it's going to be like for your particular career. And most people, when they talk to you about making Aliyah, they tell you that it's, you know, you're going to take a financial hit, um, that salaries are much higher in the U.S., jobs, are, you know, pay better, things are more expensive in this job, blah, blah, blah. Um, so that's kind of the attitude that I was, that I had going in, and that's what I was expecting. Um, and when I started looking into it, I found out that that wasn't quite the case. Um, 
that for engineers, actually, the salaries were not, I mean, they weren't as high as they are in the US, but they weren't as different as you see with many other professions in Israel. Um, I think at the time in 2015, I was looking at, you know, maybe a 10, 15% difference in salaries, something like that. And, and then there's also social benefits you get in Israel. Um, yeah, you don't have to pay so, for school. And absolutely, and day school. Um, so, you know, as right now, thank God we have four little kids. Paying for day school in the US would be, you know, $100,000 a year after taxes. Yeah. So, you know, 10, 15% cut in salary for saving that much money a year is, you know, it's a no brainer. Yeah, we um, often talk about, you know, um, it, it, you're absolutely right. I think in most professions, you will if you can even find the same kind of job, you will earn much less here and things are much more expensive. Housing, cars, gas, et cetera, are much, much more expensive. The one, the one place where I noticed it, it is kind of similar is the engineers, computer programmers. And then if you, if you are mostly religious people, but if you were going to send your kid to a day school in the States, you're actually going to save money. And probably yeah, the, by, net, by the net is going to be. Yeah. It's, it's no comparison. It's uh, if, if you can make, you know, somewhat equivalent salary, you know, talking even even half as much and often it's it's a no brainer. Um, but even even beyond that, um, in terms of just the, the job opportunities in Israel, it, it, now that I've been here for almost six years and I've gotten to know the, the field here a lot better, um, it's it's incredible, and especially for biotech and high tech in general, but, but biotech specifically. Um, there's probably nowhere in the world that has a higher concentration of, of biotech companies than, than in Israel. Um, you know, I'm, I'm talking about compared to, you know, the mega hubs in the world, Silicon Valley, you know, other places. I still think that there's a higher concentration in Israel. I mean, coming from working in a medical device company in Baltimore, where we were one of a handful in, in the state, coming to Israel where there's, you know, hundreds, if not more than a thousand biotech companies within, you know, a few hour drive from each other, it's, it's, it's a totally different ballgame. I mean, all of a sudden you have all this support and ecosystem that you don't have in most other places in the world. And it just brings you, brings up opportunities for, for amazing things to happen, which is, uh, you know, as you guys are familiar, I'm sure with um, a lot of, you know, startup nation and, and amazing technology that, that Israel comes up with. So it's been, uh, from a career standpoint, um, it was it, it was only good for my career, um, and thankfully, and, and, and I've been very, very happy to, you know, to be able to partake in the Israeli biotech field. That's really cool. What, what were you working on when you first moved here, when we met? Uh... So I was working for a company called Glucense, um, which was developing a an implantable glucose sensor for people with uh, for people with diabetes. Uh, I might actually have uh, have a slide over here. I have to say, you are uh, our our most prepared guest so far. Well, Ben, in terms ben of, in terms of slides a... and visual aids. <laughs> um, I actually, yeah, I don't have don't have a great slide. Uh, let's show this one. Hopefully, it's not uh, proprietary to Glucense. Um, but the idea was um, an implantable um, device that's you know roughly roughly this big, uh, maybe you know an inch or so, um, and as thick as a quarter. And the idea was to implant it under your skin and continuously measure your blood sugar levels for people with diabetes. Wow. 
and uh, transmit that information to a watch that you wear on top of on top of the implant and uh, that allows you to um, continuously measure your blood sugar level without having uh, to prick yourself and measure your blood that way. So, so this what diabetics are supposed to do. So this technology could probably also be adapted to, you know, detect other levels of, let's say, you know, vitamins or, or yeah, minerals, yeah. anything you might want. Exactly. So that's, that's what uh, the company was, was trying to pivot towards um, in, in uh, more recent years uh, was actually to, yeah, to identify other, other sorts of biomarkers. One thing that they were looking into was, trying to identify if, uh, if somebody had elevated biomarkers that, are, that indicate that they're at a higher risk of a heart attack, basically an early detection system for a heart mm -hmm. attack um, and other kinds of kind of out of the box projects like that. Um, let, let, me, let me just understand something. The, the, glucose, um, the glucose diabetes aspect that was already covered that exists or they were developing this? So what exists already is uh, systems for people that prick their finger and measure their blood, their blood sugar that way. Mm -hmm. um, but as far as uh, this, this device right here, this implant right here, this was something that GlueSense that we, we were developing in-house. Um, and the idea was to have it be implanted one time and last for several years inside your body, good. continuously measuring the blood sugar. Did you succeed? Uh, well, it's kind of a sad story. Uh, we succeeded um, in demonstrating that it worked well in, in animals. Um, chinchillas? And then, <laughs> Poor chinchilla. Now there's a busy uh, chinchilla with diabetes running around. <laughs> in this case, it was, uh, it was a bunch of sad pigs that we uh, implanted, uh, which are somewhat more challenging to find in Israel than they are oh, in America. I was, I was just going to say, where do you find pigs in Israel? But yeah. <laughs> Um, uh, we found them. There are, there are places in Israel that do research on pigs. Um, and why, why? Because it's more similar to humans? Yeah, for some reason, pigs uh, seem to be the animal of choice for diabetes, um, for diabetes research. I'm not sure exactly uh, why, but um, I guess the, yeah, their, their, their biology and their blood sugar uh, maintenance in, in, their, in their bodies, I guess, is most similar to humans out of, other, out of most animals. Um, and anyway, it worked well in humans, in, in, in animals. And then when they were about to start the pivotal trial in humans and, and the first the first, uh, first in human trial, uh, that's when COVID hit. Mm. Um, and it was pretty difficult to start this kind of human trial with, uh, with COVID running rampant. Um, funding dried up and unfortunately they, they closed a few months ago. Oh, that's really sad. I, I, yeah. I, maybe my mind is going to like a sci-fi place right now, but I would, I would imagine that this device might have implications or could have had implications one day down the line on COVID itself. You know, if it's discovered that you, you know, have, have less, uh, you're more resilient to COVID by having, you know, certain levels of vitamin uh, D or, or zinc or, or certain, you know, other, other markers, you know, one would not need to go to a, uh, to get a blood test to see if their supplementation is, is being effective uh, or, or perhaps even, you know, if, 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 if COVID can be detected in the blood, it, it could, you know, tell you at any given time if you're negative or positive to COVID. Well, I'm just imagining a scenario. Yeah, you know, you said sci-fi. Did you ever see? Uh, I'm sure other sci-fi movies and shows have done this. Did you ever watch the Orville? Or, or kind of? Um, I've heard of it. I okay, it doesn't matter. It's it's not relevant to the plot. But I mean, you see, I guess you see this in a lot of sci-fi where like they have a 
you know, a panel like on their arm or whatever, and they can definitely see, you know, what your levels are, but you can even adjust them, right? You can be like, oh, I'm this, and you're like, boop, boop, boop. You know, I'm playing with my arm for those who can't see. Could this one day, can, can you imagine a scenario even soon where, where we have something like this in our bodies and there's, it's connected to our smartphone, it's connected to a watch where I can be like, oh, what are my levels at right now? Like instead of, I, I just kind of playing off what you said, I don't have to go get a blood test and, and wait two days for the results, but can I just, oh, my vitamin D's down, my iron's up, you know, my this is that. Yeah, I mean, that's that that was kind of the long-term vision of the company to, to not only monitor blood sugar, but also monitor all sorts of things. And, and even more than that, you know, how you said that you can kind of dial in um, what, you know, what you, what you need your levels to be at. Um, there's, um, you know, the idea is essentially with, with what we were developing was to have a closed loop system, which means that our glucose monitor was supposed to communicate with a, an insulin pump, uh, which, you know, a separate device that is constantly connected to the person's body. And anytime that our sensor was going to detect that there was a, you know, high blood sugar event, then, uh, then the insulin pump would automatically start pumping insulin into the body and lower the blood sugar in that person. Wow. That'd be, first of all, that'd be really cool. I, th- I think even for people who aren't diabetic, there's, uh, my understanding is not super advanced on this, but, um, you know, if I, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of, um, effects that could be had for, for people who have a hard time losing weight in general, because it has to do with, you know, timing when you eat and what you eat with your glucose levels. I'm just thinking there could be all sorts of applications um, for this, uh, for even for healthy people, um, just to be able to time their nutrition and to, you know, you know, play, play with the glucose levels. Again, my, my understanding is very minimal um, on this. Um, are, are it, was this company the only one working on this or are there others trying to do similar things in the world that you're aware of? Um, Does this sound there like, are, sounds like a really beneficial technology for millions and millions of people around the world. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so I was talking about bilateral vestibular disorder affecting a million people. Um, diabetes affects upwards of 10% of the population in the world. Um, so you're talking about a gigantic market. I mean, you know, so there are, you know, tons of companies working on, uh, on coming up with these kinds of solutions. Um, we had yeah, a lot of competitors. There's actually a, a company in, in Maryland uh, called uh, Sensionics. I don't know what they're up to now, but they were one of our competitors uh, developing something similar. Um, I think ours was promising to be a better product, but uh, unfortunately yeah, it didn't work out in the end. How, how often from your experience in the kind of medical startup world, how often have you seen or heard of that there's a device where the science is really there and, and, you know, for, you know, uh, businesses can fall on many reasons and the, the product is not always one of them, you know? So um, how many times have you seen a really great invention, really great science, and it just can't get off the ground for other reasons? So I've, I've seen it a bunch of times um, and it's, it's sad. And, you know, the, the medical device and med tech world is, is really amazing and it can do amazing things. And it's really one of the only ways to push innovation in a lot of ways, but there's also so many flaws in the system that, and it's really, really sad when you see it happen. Uh, there's, there's an example of a company called BioControl, um, which was a really, really high quality uh, medical device company here in Israel. 
um, and they were developing this implant that was uh, designed to help people with, with heart problems. Um, rare heart problems that, you know, had no good, good treatment for, and it worked. Um, but in their clinical study, they were a little overambitious and they said, you know, we wanna, our aim of our clinical study is to treat problem A and we're also, you know, going to be ambitious, and we want to also treat problem B. Um, the reason they did it is because then, when you go to market, you can say your device is effective on both things and make more money. They treated problem A excellently, but problem B, it was kind of iffy. So they failed the clinical trial, and because their aims were both A and B, the fact that they succeeded in solving A meant. It, it did not mean that they were they were able to go to market. It meant that the whole clinical trial was a failure, and because of that, um, the company had to close down. And uh, you have this technology that millions of dollars, tens of millions of dollars, was poured into, and it helps people. Um, but it wasn't able to go to market because they failed the clinical trial, and there wasn't enough funding to do another clinical trial. Um, and there's yeah, there's lots of sad cases like that. What what would you change if you could? I don't want to say wave a magic kind of policy wand, but if you could, if you could uh, right now, everyone who's relevant to this ecosystem, at least here in Israel um, was listening and they were going to listen to what you, what you had to say, what, what would you fix? What would you change? The biggest problem in my eyes is how the money is distributed. Um, right now, I mean, there's, there's tons of investor money, you know, flooding into startups all around the world. How are these uh, startups chosen to be the ones that get the money? Usually you have a company sending their CEO and maybe their CTO to the investors and they pitch the company, you know, 30 minutes, an hour. Um, If things go well, uh, the company is invited back to give another pitch. All said and done, the, the, the investors speak with the company that they're pitching to, you know, maybe 10 hours. And then there's, you know, there's some more details after that, but, these massive, massive decisions are, are based on a very tiny understanding of, of what the company is capable of and what the technology is capable of. Um, and they're influenced much more by the personality of the CEO, how, how much they believe in the CEO based on the few conversations they've had with him. Um, they're based on, you know, is this, in a field that the investors are interested in investing anyway. So you can have an amazing promising technology um, that doesn't get funding simply because the CEO wasn't super charismatic or. That's the psychology, right? I mean, it's just effective sales and marketing is is necessary no matter what, you know, what the technology is going to be. You're right. You're right. I've I've heard podcasts with uh, major investors and, and they, you know, they've said flat out the, it, it almost doesn't matter to them what the product is. It's the CEO. They want to get a sense that the person running the ship is the kind of person they want to invest in, you know? Well, yeah. With good reason too. I mean, sure. it's, it's, you want to make sure that there's a, there's a modicum of stability and you want to make sure that there's a, a stable, you know, relationship with, uh, with, with people that you're able to, to feel comfortable doing yeah, business absolutely. with, especially when you're talking about major amounts uh, you know, money. of money. Uh, and, and, and especially because you want to make sure in some of these cases that you have a, propri- a proprietary relationship going forward. But um, what you're saying, Nathan, though, is, is that the, from your point of view, the problem is, is not that the money 
for the most part, investors, they're not saying, oh, we want to solve this disease or that problem. It's we're looking to invest money where there's going to be a financial return, right? Well, I think, I think the problem is that there's not enough homework done on the viability of the science, um, mostly because, you know, we're talking about cutting edge technology. There aren't usually a lot of experts in the world on cutting edge technology. That's what makes, makes it so <laughs> cutting edge. And, and they're not able to effectively evaluate uh, the risks and, and, and the potential rewards. Um, I, I don't have a, a silver bullet solution there. I, I just, you know, maybe, maybe there should be some sort of government bodies set up to assist in this process, right? Uh, you know, a publicly funded uh, think tank, for example, that investors can go to and say, dude, you know, help me perform due diligence on this startup. Tell me, you know, dig into them. Uh, uh, just uh, the, if, if we can have the money directed more towards the, the problems that really need that, that are uh, that really need addressing and have the most promising technology to address those problems, I think we would have a medical device field that was, you know, 10 times or 100 times more effective and productive in addressing the real problems in the world. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting. Um, first of all, I, it's hard for me to believe, you know, I come from a different kind of think tank world. I deal with public policy think tanks. I deal with foreign policy think tanks, Jewish policy think tanks. Um, there's no science policy think tanks that are kind of doing this. Um, Here's your question. business idea, man. <laughs> um, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know if there's a science policy, but I guess what I'm, what I'm talking about isn't really science policy. It's talking about more of a, uh, maybe a science due diligence consultancy or, or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Basically a publicly funded science uh, due diligence uh, yeah, think tank where you just have experts that, you know, are paid by the government to do research into, into different startups, nonpartisan people, non-biased. Interesting idea. <laughs> so what are you working on what are you working on these days brain q is that it what it's called? brain q that's right um so brain q is uh is an exciting company so i started working there about a year ago um and we're we're developing a therapy um that helps people recover from various neurological disorders right now we're, we're focused on stroke um and we have this uh, wearable device that transmits and stimulates the brain and spinal cord using electromagnetic fields. Um, and in order to know how to properly stimulate the brain, we actually record brain, brain activity from these, from these patients using EEG and other forms of uh, electrophysiological measures. And we have a strong data science team that is able to analyze all the data, try to figure out you know, what, is, what is wrong with the brain, what are the specific deficits in this person's brain, and then stimulate the brain using our device in order to help, uh, help the person recover as quickly as possible from, uh, from the stroke or spinal cord injury or a bunch of other diseases and neurological disorders that can be potentially uh, helped in a significant uh, uh, way by, by our therapy. You gotta you got walk me through this. So, so first of all, they're wearing, what does this device look like? Does it look like a... Um, oh, well, do you have a slide? Do you have a picture? I, uh, <laughs> website. We have a website. I'm actually not up. sure. Uh, yeah. Let's see. Let's see what's on the website. Um, I'm, I'm imagining like, like an upside down, you know, what, what it's called like a calendar <laughs> thing, you know? Yeah. We got, we got a picture of our device. 
and oh. and one of, one of my colleagues modeling it. So this is the BrainQ website, BrainQtech.com. Okay. Um, so for those, for those who are listening, it looks, it's open on top. It's, uh, and it goes around the head, kind of attaches, it looks like to the back of a wheelchair. In this particular so, case, of course. So, in, so it, it, it's actually a freestanding device. It's not connected to the wheelchair. Um, but it's in this case, you know, a lot of people suffering either spinal cord injury or stroke are often in wheelchairs following the impairment. So it's a device that can be comfortably worn while in a wheelchair. Okay. Um, and it has a, a part, kind of a, a tail, if you will, that kind of sits along the spine. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's where it, uh, you know, it Velcros around your chest. And then the part around your head looks sort of like a hat that you kind of uh, wear around your head. Uh, is what stimulates your brain and the part around your back stimulates your spinal cord. How, how is it stimulating it? So it uses a technology uh, called uh, extremely low intensity and low frequency electromagnetic fields. Mm. Um, it's kind of a mouthful, um, but essentially it's um, very weak magnetic fields that you, you know, you can't even move a magnet that was on a, that was sitting in front of you. Um, and, and it basically oscillates and uh, cycles these magnetic fields um, through your nervous system. Um, and it's been shown in many studies that these kinds of weak electromagnetic fields have the potential to interact with your nervous system um, in ways that, are, that can sometimes be very beneficial if, if the magnetic field is tuned in the specific appropriate way. Um, and that's, that's where the AI and data science comes in uh, to our company. So to understand how to tune our electromagnetic fields, we, are able, we, uh, we study how the patient's brains are behaving and understanding exactly how the electromagnetic field will best interact with, with their particular condition. How did, um, I'm assuming you didn't invent this, you, you kind of came on board as the head of R&D? Yeah, that's right. Okay, so the, the people who came up with this concept with this technology, do you know how they stumbled across this or how they had this idea? Or so they- there's, a, there's, a, there's an interesting founder story. Uh, let's see if it's, uh, I was wondering if it was gonna be on the website, but it looks like, yeah, it looks like it's not. Um, the, uh, the founder of the company, um, Yaron Segal, um, he, his son has an autoimmune disorder that affects his brain. Um, he, and so he basically took it upon himself to find a cure for his son's disorder that does not have, does not have a cure. Um, and he, uh, is a climatologist by training. Um, he spent many years studying how the earth's magnetic fields have interesting effects on biology. Um, and he came up with the idea of harnessing these kind of natural magnetic fields towards, um, uh, curing neurological disorders. And, uh, so he was motivated by, by his son's disorder and uh, founded the company, teamed up with a, a professor in Hebrew University, um, founded the company six years ago, um, and it's been doing quite well since. We actually uh, completed a, uh, well, I don't want to go into too much detail, <laughs> um, but we're, we're doing well. And, Good news coming um, Yes, 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 exactly. Um, so yeah, it's been a, it's been an exciting uh, company to work for, and I also want to just put in a plug that uh, we we're we're hiring. So 
if uh, if you or anybody you know is interested in joining an excellent company working on exciting medical products in the field of AI and uh, you know we were looking for software developers, uh, QA, medical technology people, um, check out our website. There's a list of careers, uh, a list of job openings. So that's brainqtech.com. One, one word, brainqtech.com. I, I was reading the website a little bit uh, uh, earlier, and it was interesting because there were some, to- there were some uh, concepts in the website that I'd heard before. Of, of course, it may be in a different context and not fully understanding what they are. So, for example, one of the things that, that is mentioned in your website is neural networks. And I know that Elon Musk frequently talks about he, he's developing a neural network that's going to connect us uh, so that we no longer have to speak. We'll just be able to communicate without having to verbalize things that, that seems to be uh, where, where we're headed in the future. Um, yeah. So what, what, is, what, can you explain what that is and what this is? And, and is it the same thing? So they're related. Um, and it's, it's a little bit of a confusing term um, because um, neural networks means two things. The original term is a network in your nervous system. So neural pathways are part of a, of a neural network. Um, you, you know, a network is essentially interconnected neurons that communicate with each other on a somewhat regular basis. And that's essentially the basic definition of a neural network. Um, and what, what is you know, kind of, I guess, more commonly thought of when people say neural networks nowadays is, is actually artificial neural networks. Um, and what that is, that's a, that's a data science term. And our company actually deals with both um, biological and artificial neural networks, which makes it a little bit confusing to know what we're talking about sometimes. Um, but the artificial neural networks are a form uh, of artificial intelligence um, that's you know, been uh, increasing in popularity in, in recent years. Um, so Elon Musk specifically is, he's, he also is, is in both arenas, right? There's the company Neuralink, uh, which is trying to develop a uh, sort of brain reading chip um, implantable device that, that is able to read neural networks. And he's also planning on using that information, feeding it into artificial neural networks to help understand and decipher what the brain is talking about. Um, so, in, yeah, in our case, we're, we're trying to use artificial neural networks also in order to understand what the brain is doing and then use that to ha- inform our device on the, the, the particular treatment to use to repair damaged neural networks in the brain. Can, can, you, can you repair damaged neural networks or do you have to use some kind of uh, outside stimulation to... Uh, I don't even know the words of, of what I'm trying to ask. Um, <laughs> so I stimulate the yeah. that, that, that the person can't do anymore. So there, there are ways of restoring neural networks naturally. Um, the gold standard today for recovering from stroke uh, is to do physical therapy. And there's, there's a lot of evidence to show that the more physical therapy you do, the, the more your brain will recover. Um, essentially, your brain suffers an ex- extreme trauma when you have a stroke, right? A big part of your brain, or sometimes a small part of your brain, um, loses its functionality and other parts of the brain have to pick up the slack. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of rewiring of neural networks. Um, and whatever used to control your hand, that part of the brain might have died. And another part of your brain has to learn how to do that. 
So the idea is the more that you use your hand and do physical therapy exercises with your hand, the faster your brain will adapt and learn to recover those, those damaged neural networks. And our device is designed to assist and uh, help the brain become more plastic is, is the term used in uh, neuroscience to uh, enable it to learn more quickly and, and recover more quickly and better. Wow. When, when you're doing research and development, do you, do you look at uh, as a part of that, what implications the technology might have or might maybe useful in? So for example, would you look at something like this and go, okay, we're talking about strokes and we're talking about uh, a common, uh, common uh, brain conditions that, that people suffer from, but like maybe there's a, I don't know, uh, implications within, uh, you know, for PTSD or soldiers that come back ever experiencing brain trauma and, and how can we reposition this to be something that could be geared for a defense contract, for example. Or, or I'll, I'll take it in a different direction. Can this be used to make athletes have better reflexes? I don't know. Like, mm -hmm. um, so the answer, the short answer is yes, definitely. You know, any, anybody involved in these kinds of medical device projects are always thinking a few steps ahead as to, you know, what, what the next steps are going to be. Um, and uh, the, the flip side though is, and, and by the way, like super athletes, I was always uh, on the vestibular project. I was always wondering like, hmm, maybe I can, uh, you know, give myself some sort of super balance and yeah, uh, yeah. You know, plant in healthy people. Um, and, and the flip side is that a startup does not have a lot of resources, not have a lot of money and they have to be laser focused on what they're trying to accomplish if they want to have any chance of success. Um, and at BrainQ, we actually, they're, they're, they're especially um, before I joined, there was um, a lot of trying, trying to figure out what was going to be our number one uh, focus, right? Because this is a technology that actually has a potential to help a wide range of neurological disorders. Um, and there's evidence uh, both from what BrainQ has done and from literature uh, to support the, you know, that it can help Alzheimer's disease, uh, multiple sclerosis, um, traumatic brain injury, and the list goes on and on and on. Um, so there, there's tons of potential for this kind of technology, um, but in order to get to that next step, we have to first focus and succeed in one thing. In, uh, yeah, in one thing, you know, put all our eggs in one basket, if you will, and then uh, and hope we hope we have success there, and then branch out into other areas. It brings it brings to mind an interesting question. There, there are implications. Let, let's divide it into two groups, okay? There are implications for a device or a technology that could be, you know, to help people that are suffering from something, okay? So we'll call it uh, altruistic purpose, uh, or, or 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 beneficial beneficial or something like that. It could be to cure a disease. It could be to help somebody who has an injury. You understand what I'm saying? The other could be, like Dan was saying, it could help athletes. It could create uh, more efficient, uh, you know ability to run or to swim or to you know all of these things that are kind of like elective like or, wouldn't it be great if we smarter. could or, i don't know maybe we could make us smarter uh, right does the industry look upon those two in different ways saying you know it's going to be easier to raise money if we're trying to cure a disease rather than create a really good athlete or is it like you know what there's a lot of money in sports so we should position towards that <laughs> so it's, it's an interesting question I think that, generally speaking, um, the industry goes where the money is. 
Um, you know, these are businesses after all. Um, so yeah, if there's something that could make a ton of money helping football players, you know, jump higher, then I think that there's going to be a lot of money flowing there. But the caveat there is that there are a lot of people that are, you know, have an, an ulterior motive when they invest in medical device companies. And, you know, they, they have, they have a, a slight bias towards investing in things that they, they believe are going to be beneficial to mankind. And you also see that in, uh, in salaries, actually. You know, you have people working in a biotech company, um, the same position. If you're working in a high-tech company, um, you know, that is working on some app for, uh, you know, uh, who knows what, uh, that same position will get paid more in a high-tech company than a biotech company. And a lot of people are willing to take this, the hit to their salary because they feel like they're, you know, contributing to the benefit of mankind. And, you know, I could say the same thing for me. Like I personally, you know, chose this field because it, it's something that it motivates me to help, to help work on a product that that's going to benefit sick people and impaired people and maybe even myself or loved ones one day. That's uh, that's a big motivating factor. That's really cool. Um, uh, let me ask kind of a, a spin on where I thought you were going with that question, Benny. Sure. And that maybe, maybe it's not even relevant for this, but in general, in this world, are there, is there ever a discussion? Are there ever thoughts of how this might be used for evil one day? You know, uh, no, I, I, you know, maybe I said that kind of in a funny way, but, you know, we've talked about before on this show and, and, you know, how the creators of Facebook never thought what could happen with social media and, and social media. No, they were just trying to create a hot or not website. You know, yeah, right. They, look, great, great. A, a lot of people who create innovations and once we get into tampering with the human body, whether it's fixing problems or making us, you know, better than what we can naturally be. I'm, I'm sure it all comes from a good place, but is there ever discussion about how these might one day be used in a bad place? Should someone want to go there with this technology? Yeah. I mean, there's definitely um, instances such as that. I, I think that the, the bigger risk in, in, in the companies that I've come across and that I've worked for and that I've worked with um, is more concern of unintended side effects. Um, like the, the company that I worked for previously, GlueSense, they actually, the, the implant was, was this crazy idea that had genetically engineered uh, human cells inside the, the implant and they were designed to stay inside the implant. Um, and those were essentially the glucose sensors. It's kind of a complicated explanation for why they had that, but that was the device. And we, you know, we're about to implant that into, into people for the first time ever, genetically engineered human cells that were designed to do something totally different. Um, and you could have had the unintended side effect of those cells coming loose and doing something unexpected in the body. And it might've even been a potential beneficial effect, maybe, maybe causing some unintended, uh, yeah, who knows what? But uh, but I think that's that's really the bigger the bigger risk with uh, with this kind of technology. I mean, yeah, you, you can even imagine though, like um, I, I, maybe not this, but anything that can, that can control or manipulate the brain or behavior, you can imagine authoritarian regimes, you know, wanting to get their hands on this or tinker with these kind of technologies. I mean, no no need to even go that far. I mean, you can see the the implication of CRISPR technology right now in in China, and we can only 
know, speculate and theorize about what they might be doing with the ability to gen- genetically alter uh, human beings. You know, you can create super strong people that don't feel any sort of uh, fatigue whatsoever yeah. on, on their muscles. And you can create people that are, you know, a certain height and build and you can do all kinds of things for certain, you know, possible nefarious purposes and and you're really toying with and this isn't you know i'm not making some sort of an, uh, a religious statement here or something but there is an ethical statement here to be yeah, made absolutely. which is like what are we doing with human life well it's, it's that same question about you know <laughs> there, there's the kind of the people rushing to the science and then the i don't know if the people who are saying oh, oh, oh what are the implications of this i don't know if they're they're even talking to each other um you, you know i don't know if you have any any thoughts on that yeah i mean well, one thing that I thought of just now is, is um, the kind of technology we're using now to understand the deficits in the person's brain and the AI technologies we're using for that. Um, that sort of technology could one day perhaps be used for, uh, you know, nefarious purposes. Uh, for example, reading people's minds, um, you know, privacy. Uh, Facebook one day will be wanting to use our technology to read our minds to even better target their ads towards us. Um, so there are, there are some, yeah, some of these kind of unintended, uh, nefarious potential, uh, for, for these technologies as well. Are, are you aware of kind of the broader scientific world of, of kind of what Benny was talking about? Like how far away are we from being able to engineer ourselves or our offspring, um, for good or for bad? Um, so I think that actually this, this vaccine technology is, uh, is something that, um, from my, so I'm not an expert in this field, but from my understanding, it's, uh, something that is a step in that direction, a big step in that direction. Um, because essentially it's, uh, especially the adenovirus version of the vaccine, which, uh, transmits viral DNA, well, it's genetically engineered viral DNA into, into our cells. Um, potentially, uh, viral DNA can be intertwined with your own DNA and then be passed on to every cell in your body and eventually passed on to your offspring. Um, so it's you know not so <laughs> such a big stretch to think about the fact that you can tweak your DNA. Um, you know, you can change your eye color maybe if you uh, get a specific vaccine or you know a ge- genetically engineered virus to change your eye color that that's that's something that's not actually so far off um you well, need to keep raising people and generations of people to be good people i think is the answer. <laughs> but but no but but for, to be real for a second i mean to go into kind of your world of of political science i mean you, you have kind of like what we want in the ideal world and how people would use these technologies responsibly and with, with proper ethics and morals and a compass and whatnot and then you have you know, the, the real politic of the situation, which is that, and this is unfortunately probably more where I think that, that the world always will be, which is that if something is possible, it's probably going to be done. Yeah. So if, if it's possible for, for a government, and it doesn't matter which government, because every government would want to, to create a super soldier, well, they'll for, create for, a super soldier. Forget I mean, super soldier. I mean, could, could we be getting to a place where, uh, you know, first of all, genetic diseases for sure are going to be out the, the window um, or we can say, okay, you know, that family gene I have where we're all kind of slightly overweight or we can't, you know, um, can, can we tweak that? Or, you know, yeah. the fact that everyone in my family seems to have bad knees, like, is that, you know, or people have heart problems, chronic heart issues or diabetes that runs in the family. Like, 
are, are those are the, you know there's certainly a lot of positive implications but just a lot of also maybe cosmetic you know applications to this yeah yeah it's it's a really uh, sensitive uh, ethical issue right i mean where do you draw the line right if you can uh, i mean there's already the ability now to screen your offspring right you can theoretically uh, choose to, if you want to have a boy or girl and have have uh, have your offspring grown in a, in a, in a test tube um, and beyond that you can screen their dna choose an choose a child that doesn't have any genetic disorders i mean that that's already technology that we have today um, and what the, the kind of stuff that that we're talking about now of, of tweaking your dna I don't think it's that far off and it's, it's really, yeah, it's quite an ethical, ethical challenge and dilemma. And uh, it's not, not really sure how uh, future policymakers are going to, are going to grapple with those because they're, they're coming. Um, so it's a question of, of when more than if. Wow. Uh, we we kind of want to wrap up. I want to throw um, maybe one kind of slightly open-ended question. I don't even know if you, you've thought about this, but um, it, if I came to you and said, here is a blank check to do whatever medical startup you want to solve one single problem that you want right now, what would you go for? Oh, wow. Um, economics aside. Economics aside. So something that's always um, spoken to me was, was the visual system. Um, it's just it's something that you know, if you kind of study the visual system and understand the complexity of the human eye and, and how the brain processes images, and it's, it's phenomenal. I mean, the amount of, of accuracy and, and, and level, of, level of attention to detail and sophistication is, is just mind blowing. Um, and yet there's, you know, a lot of blind people in the world today um, that suffer uh, immensely. So I would, I would want to focus on uh, some sort of uh, visual prosthesis, uh, you know, bionic eye, if you will. Um, and there's there's a few different ways of, of, of accomplishing that. Um, I guess ideally I would want to do it um, in a way that doesn't even require an implant. Um, so there's, there's some new technologies out there that um, allow you to essentially stimulate the brain from outside of the head without, without needing any kind of an implant. You can there's different ways of doing it, either ultrasound or uh, shining lights through the skull. You're able to focus beams of energy in one form or another onto individual neurons in the brain um, and essentially get, you know, it, it get somebody to perceive things by, from, out, from, from, from sending signals from outside their brain. So that exists, it, that exists right now? That exists right now, yeah. Um, <laughs> mind, mind blown. Living in. Um, I'm Dan Fetterman. There, there's no, uh, you know, there's no marketable product that's in the lab right now. And they're, you know, animal, I don't think it's, to my knowledge, it hasn't been, <laughs> to my knowledge, it hasn't been tested in humans yet, but um, it's something that uh, for sure, for sure exists and has been demonstrated in animals and uh, multiple different kinds of technologies. Um, and, uh, you know, kind of a far off concept, but I think it'd be amazing if you can give a blind person glasses that have cameras on them and they can see the world. And then the cameras uh, feed information to lasers or ultrasound projectors and stimulate the brain um, directly from those glasses, Wow! Giving, giving a blind person back vision without even having to implant anything to their head. That's it's quite a, 
I, I apologize for the pun. That's quite the vision. <laughs> and 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 I guess I would my final my final point here or my final question would be if you can if you can look where we are in in a year on the COVID front with your data and your understanding, what's your prediction? Um, where should I put my money? Um, I think wow, that's that's a tough one. Um, or, or so I think or you could look ahead. <sighs> I think that in Israel, I'm, I'm optimistic. I think that we're going to be essentially at herd immunity. Making Aliyah um, a good decision. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Especially for my parents, who uh, are obviously older than I am and made Aliyah in August. So oh, glad man. they did. And uh, if you're listening, I'm glad you got vaccinated. Thank you. I Manama. saw your mom on earlier. I don't know if she's still on. <laughs> um, and uh, so I think I'm optimistic about Israel. I am not as optimistic about the rest of the world. I think that, um, first of all, in the US, there's the vaccine rollout is just going incredibly slowly and there's this very strong anti-vaxxer movement that uh, it's gonna make it difficult in the US. And on top of that, there's mutations. Um, so I don't think COVID is gonna be behind us in a year, definitely. I'm very confident that it's not gonna be behind us in a year. Um, I think that vaccinated people are going to be relatively uh, free and, and comfortable to move around the world. Um, I don't think the world is going to go back to the way it used to be for at least, I don't know, two, two years, maybe. The, the, the big wild card is, um, is the mutations. Um, if, you know, we're seeing some serious ones now, if there's another serious one in a month or two from now, that could also be a big game changer. Um, it's hard to say. Um, I, you know, I could be, I could be <laughs> overly pessimistic, um, but I'm, I'm optimistic that in a year from now, there's going to be many countries that have things pretty well under control that we should be able to freely travel to Europe. Um, and, and I'd say most other developed countries in the world, hopefully, hopefully even the U S good. Well, we, we want to share in your optimism and uh, continue to keep us up to date. Um, for those who are listening who are not already friends with Nathan, you can find him and his regular uh, updates and explanations that make all of the science and data more accessible to us uh, common folk. Um, so we, we appreciate um, what you're doing. We appreciate what you're doing in Work. science and, 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 you know, for in the medical field and, um, you know, trying really to help humanity with what you're doing. I think it's, it's inspirational. It's amazing. Um, I certainly learned a lot on this episode. Um, so we appreciate what you're doing. We appreciate you coming on our show. Continue to keep us updated. And, uh, and, and I would just add, uh, Nathan, if people want to find uh, your information, if they want to stay uh, abreast of your, of your charts, of your data, how, how can they find you online? So... My Facebook is the way I've been uh, publishing. I started writing a few columns on the Medium at one point um, as well, um, but just never really gained gained a lot of traction, so I just stuck with Facebook. Um, yeah, search me on Facebook, Natan Davidovich Davidovich. It's spelled in English, pronounced Davidovich in English. But uh, and we'll tell you what, if if you have um, regular updates that you want to send our way, and we can report them on the show, we'd be happy to do that. Great. 
I'd be happy to send them to you. Um, all right. Well, thank you guys so much. This was uh, this was really a lot of fun uh, being on the show. Uh, a lot, it was a lot of fun for us. Thank you. We learned a lot. Thank you. Uh, and uh, and yeah, we look forward to being in touch uh, in the in the future as we as we go down this road. And when we Great. get back to the Hebrew, you will get lunch again. <laughs> <laughs> Looking forward. All right. Have Thanks so night. much. Take care. Take Bye. care. Juanced is a joint creation of Benny Shoulder and Dan Fetherman. Make sure to subscribe on whatever platform you get your podcasts. For more information and show notes about this and previous episodes, visit us at juanced.com and feel free to hit us with your comments and suggestions. Thank you for tuning in and we'll see you back for the next episode of Juanced.